0: Welcome to Keeping It A Hundo. I'm your host, Matty Hundo. Today's guest is Bill Baino. He's currently an assistant coach with the Indiana Pacers. He's a longtime NCAA and NBA coach. So for about seven or eight years now, I've been playing in a pickup basketball game on the weekends. As long as I'm in Miami, I'm not traveling or I'm in Chicago, I play in this game. And it's a group of guys, great group of guys, uh, Some of them ex-professional basketball players, some current. But everybody has played at some point, whether they were high school, college, or professional players. We have a really good group of basketball players, including Jamal Mashburn, Tim Hardaway, Ray Allen, Carlos Arroyo. Guys we've had on the podcast like Rajah Bell, NFL guys like Jason Taylor, Jonathan Vilma. Just a great group of athletes, and it's fun to be a part of this couple of the guys who have been playing in the group for years, uh, one of them was a guest on Keeping It a Hundo, Zeus Hernandez. The other one, Alex Frazier, who played at University of Miami. They've been telling me they have a friend and they said, you gotta meet this guy. You guys have a lot in common. You guys will get along real well. So the guy's name is Bill Baino. And I knew of Bill Baino from growing up in Massachusetts. He was a coach at UMass when I was in high school. He was Calipari's assistant coach and that's when UMass came to prominence. They made the Final Four. Marcus Camby, Lou Rowe, Travieso, Padilla, the whole crew. They had such a fun team and they made college basketball in the state of Massachusetts relevant really. So it was hard not to be a fan of this and just from being a fan I knew who Bill Baino was. He ended up parlaying his assistant coach position at UMass into a head job at UNLV. So he was a head coach at UNLV. He was a head coach at Loyola Marymount. He had a lot of success at UNLV, not so much at Loyola, but this is a guy who started his assistant coaching career when he was like 22, 23, fresh out of playing at Sacred Heart University, which some of you know is the place that former Beverly High D1 Lac star Jimbo Kelly put on the map. But before Jimbo Kelly, there was Bill Baino at Sacred Heart in Connecticut. He was a D2 All-American. He's an assistant or a graduate assistant under P.J. Calissimo at Seton Hall. He moves on to Kansas under Larry Brown where they win a national championship with Danny Manning. Goes on to UMass with Calipari. UNLV, that's when things really start to go off the rails and his addiction takes over. Stress of coaching and I think the environment of being in Las Vegas and being, you know, on top of the town. He's winning conference championships and he's in his early 30s, alcohol, drugs, partying, you name it. and. It was time for him to face his demons, and he did. And he's been sober since 2001, I believe. And his coaching career has brought him to the NBA, where he's been an assistant coach with the Portland Trailblazers, Minnesota Timberwolves, Toronto Raptors, and now currently with the Indiana Pacers. Okay, so back to the story where we're playing pickup ball on the weekend, and it was a few weeks ago, and I got a guy on my team named Bill. And I had a great time playing with him, seemed like a good guy, he was a little bit older, but he knew his stuff, he knew the game, and he could still play a little bit. And Alex Frazier walks into the gym and he sees us on the same team and he says, oh good, you finally met Billy. And I said, yeah, I met Bill, he's on my team, I don't know who the hell he is, but I met him. He says, that's Bill Baino. And I said, oh, okay, so now I know Bill Baino. I knew who he was, I knew the name, but I didn't know that was him playing on my team that day. So by the second game, Bill's calling me Matty Ice. You know, we're having a great time, shooting the shit on the court, he reminded me of people from home, just a good solid East Coast guy, he's from New York, Goshen, New York, right by Newburgh, New York. And he grew up playing in the streets of Newburgh, uh, which is a crime ridden area in New York that gave him an outlet for his skills on the court and off. Not only was Billy excelling on the court, but he was actually rocking the mic a little bit too. He had a friend named Kid Nice who asked him to write a rhyme in 1976. And he performed under the name MC Snow. He may be the first white rapper in the history of rap music. Now, keep in mind, Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang wasn't released till 1979. MC Snow, aka Bill Bano, rocked a mic in 1976. This guy's a legend, a pioneer. I am honored to say I have a new friend in Bill Bano. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. We sat down for a long time in Miami. We recorded this on the day of the NBA draft, so it was a couple weeks ago and I learned some really interesting things about him including his affinity for helping people, raising children that are his own, adopting children, mentoring, just a solid guy and somebody who has done a lot for recovery and people who suffer with addiction. Great guy to talk to, great guy to know, and he can tell a hell of a story. I mentioned that he coaches for the Pacers. That means he has Larry Bird stories. I could listen to Larry Bird stories all day. He once dropped 53 in a rucka game. This is my conversation with Bill Baino. Rappers are monkey, flipping with the funky rhythm. I'll be kicking. Musician inflicting composition of pain. I'm like Scarface, sniffin' cocaine. Home in the M16. See with the pen, I'm extreme. Now bullet holes left in my holes I'm suited up with street clothes. Hand me a nine and out defeat froze. Y'all know my steel with or without the airplane. I keep some E and J bent up in the stairway. I either on a corner betting and with the Crazy how easy this is, huh? Yeah,
1: it's you, you can set up a damn media center and you know, no different than like Jalen and Jacoby and shit. Same thing.
0: <laughs> so you got the draft tonight?
1: Yeah, just anxious to see. I'm gonna take Depot to dinner and watch it together.
0: You got a spot picked out?
1: Uh, we were. I was gonna do Komodo.
0: This what? won't come out before. Yeah, wait. What? Nobody will bother right, you. Right,
1: right. What uh, where, where should I take? Komodo's cool. Yeah,
0: it's a cool spot. We I have I, TVs at the bar. I don't, don't know. I'll check. Yeah, they do at the bar, at the bar. Yeah, because
1: I know it's not going to be on. I just want to see it, just to see.
0: Komodo's cool.
1: Yeah, good food.
0: Yep, good food. Um, so Vic's
1: doing good in his rehab. He's working hard.
0: I was going to ask you about him, uh, now that we're on the topic of him. do you? I've I've heard a lot about his recovery, This uh, not his recovery, but the way he's transformed himself they say that he changed his diet and his workouts and all that stuff yeah. i mean is that something a he really story did about
1: that oh yeah it because he's my guy they showed during the season one of our video guys pulled a picture of him up with his shirt off when he was with orlando and i just went you gotta be fucking kidding me like That's a tom you? brady pre-draft yeah he goes <laughs> He goes, "Man, I was eating fast food. I didn't know anything about anything. I just was like, wow, fresh out of high school." A lot of those guys totally are like that. transformed his body. I mean, and he, you know, he's going to come back I think better and stronger than ever. What just watching him, you know, already yesterday in his workout, he's shooting, he's pushing off that foot, you know, he's not dunking off it, but like he's cutting and planting and catching and shooting on the move and shooting off the dribble. He's ahead of schedule, so we just gotta be really careful. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for the load management that's going on in the NBA now. You look at Durant and Clay Thompson, it's crazy. Know, and they measure your load, which is how much energy you're expending. Yeah, yeah. And I'll bet those guys both had high Well
0: know. Steph looked drained. Yeah. By game
1: two or three. He yeah, was yeah, looked no. done. And it's amazing what those guys go through on a nightly basis because they are the focal point, and the whole game plan is beat them up, grab, hold. Don't worry about your fouls. Try to be cute with it, you know. But if you watch them come off a screen, they are literally have two hands on the chest of the defense, pushing off just to be able to get open. It's like a, a wrestling match, yeah. and they, you know, they don't call it because it's just part of the game. Especially in the playoffs, they let let you get away with it, but they don't get enough credit, especially Steph, for how he gets attacked every game. Yeah, everybody Grabbed goes at him. Hold and Like, the whole game, screen him as much as you can. Pick get and roll him. As many hits as you can. You know, just try to wear him down, and he just plays through it,
0: and he's unbelievable. The concept of changing the eating and all that stuff, like Oladipo. Huge. And Bede. Imagine if he... Figures it out, and Joel.
1: I worked with Joel at Adidas Nations. I love the kid. They, when I got him at Adidas Nations, going into his freshman year. Uh, the head of the camp of, of Adidas said, "Hey, you know, this is a favor to Bill Self. He can't really play. He's a project." And after one workout, I said, "Who told you this kid was a project?" <laughs> he, can't play. he goes, "Well, everyone thinks he's a project because he just started playing." I said, "This kid is a lottery pick." I said, "His footwork and skills." are off the charts for 7'2". And you're right, if he... I think Joel likes the sugar, because I heard he drinks yep. the Shirley Temples. And yep. sugar, I've, I've cut out sugar and lost 30 pounds. Sugar's yeah, poison, yeah. as you know. Yep. So no, if, he, if he'll if he do that, usually it takes a year or two for the young guys to realize, all right, this ain't college anymore. I have to take care of my body. Yeah. It's one thing that worries me about Zion a little bit. You know, he's 285 pounds yeah. at yeah, six. Yeah. Foot six. In an eighty two game schedule at high usage rate, an explosion. I think that's what ultimately hurt Derrick Rose. His game was yeah. all about explosion and he had heavy usage rate and he was every single game he was having those explosive jumps, you know, how many times a game, you know? It's and, like
0: Blake Griffin, but if you can't transform into a different type of player, yeah, your career's not long.
1: Yeah. And Zion's a home run. It's just you know you got to worry about the weight and the injuries but he's just big boned you know it was like pekovich in minnesota pekovich watched his yeah, diet yeah. he had two great years for us and then his ankles couldn't support his weight and he was you know vigilant in you know how he ate he was just you know he could starve himself he'd be 275 pounds.
0: Yeah. he so. looked like a bouncer he yeah yeah, like, he like was, a yeah yeah russian mafia bouncer yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> We have Bill Baino, assistant coach, Indiana Paces. His resume speaks for itself. Uh, I first heard of Bill when he was with UMass. I was growing up outside of Boston and UMass became a powerhouse. And Bill was a big part of that, almost dynasty really. Um, changed basketball in the state of Massachusetts, changed basketball at that college, changed basketball in that conference. Uh, and Bill was what, 24, 25 yeah, I when he think- got there?
1: My first year with John at UMass, I was, I think, 25, yeah. Was making $30,000 and thought I was rich. Yeah. John goes, I can only pay you 30. Well, if you go from zero. <laughs> Where do I
0: sign? Zero to 30 grand, sounds like yeah. a lot.
1: No, you know, I was just talking to a young coach at Utah in, in the jazz organization and just giving him advice, and I said, starting out, you don't even worry about money. My first year coaching at Seton Hall for PJ, I made five thousand dollars for the whole year you know you get meals with the team you just figure it out but you don't ever make a decision based on money just get your foot in the door work your butt off show them what you're about and good things will happen but uh the years you you mentioned i mean what what john and all of us did were able to do at uh, umass i think is going to go down as one of the most underappreciated underrated you know accomplishments in sports and uh You know, the Camby thing, to me, uh, you know, Marcus is a great, great kid. All of that was, and, and not giving him an out, but it was all his boys who were from the streets who were playing agents one against the other. They were taking money from like four different agents, and they were keeping most of the money. And everyone thought, you know, there was shenanigans or stuff going on. Marcus Camby was the number one player in the country and didn't have a car, you know, so there wasn't. Paying going on, there wasn't cheating going on. If there was, we would have been caught. And I thought John got totally, totally uh, portrayed in an unfair light. What coach was going to be able to keep agents away from a player when it wasn't happening on our campus? Yeah. They were going to his friends in Hartford, you know, and the friends were taking advantage. And, and this wasn't even a lot of money. This was like,
0: sc- yeah, in the and grand ske- the scheme of
1: things, I mean, it was still illegal to take those benefits and Marcus owned up to it but it you know the real story is you can't blame a coach for that for for what's going on it's just like the Derrick Rose SAT thing John got blamed for that anyone in college basketball knows if a player is going to cheat on the SAT it's done through his AAU coach or his high school coach I have friends that have done it yeah college coaches they have nothing to do with it yeah and you look at now the scandals of getting kids in college with all the Hollywood celebrities yeah. and you know Massimo and the other female actress yeah. and Laurie Laughlin, yeah, yeah, and uh, John had nothing to do with that. You you go to the coach and say, Hey, is he going to get his test score? Is he not? And they'll tell you, Well, you know, he needs a hundred, but I think he'll make it. And you know, as a coach, if maybe there's something funny going on, but you don't know for sure and you know, it's it's not something that the coaches arrange. And John got beat up for that too, I, and I think that was really unfair. When we got there, we were one of the ten worst programs in the '80s for the whole decade. You know, I played there with you my with my great right. skills. We won three games. We were three and twenty
0: four. My freshman year. You guys were off the radar. Like we didn't, when I was growing up, we didn't think about like, oh, I want to go to UMass to play basketball. Go to UMass
1: to party. Yeah, yeah, everybody (laughs) did that. Yeah.
0: But no, it was, uh, I mean,
1: no one wanted to go there. When we got there, we had rotary phones and we had cubicles as offices that we shared with the women's team and some other administration. So I'm trying to make a recruiting call and it's like being in... (laughs) You know, one of those Wall Street rooms where everyone's just code calling. You can hear everyone talking. You had to think about in college recruiting, you're on the phone all the time. And so you got to dial. You might have to make 50 calls a day. And you're dialing and waiting for that rotary to come. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we had to totally transform that. And what John did there was was truly amazing. And, uh, you know, I don't think they're never going to get it back to where it was. It was just a perfect storm of events of the right people you know in that job and John's ability and our staff was really good and we we got good players and you know they bought in but John's there's a reason why he's a hall of fame coach he you know very few people could have done what he did there, and to top it off, we went into a league against John Chaney and Temple that had produced, dominated, dominated first round
0: draft picks, you know, Rick Brunson, Mark Macon. My first AAU team I ever played for, Rick Brunson's dad. Yeah. He's from the rival high school that I went to, but he's older than me, but I looked up to Rick. I wore champion sneakers in high school because Rick wore champion at Salem High. Yeah,
1: Rick could really play, good guy, Uh, did an unbelievable job with his son. Jalen, you know Jalen's a winner. You watch what Jalen does yeah. in this NBA. He's he was good in his first year. Oh, and uh, he's a player that just knows how to play. But yeah, the UMass it was a it was a special special seven eight year run. And you're right, we did kind of unite the state, and it became the state
0: university. It did because we're yeah. not in Boston. We nobody really is big BC fans. It's not yeah. a college town. It's a yeah. pro town so bc never really had this the city on lock yeah they had their moments you know they did bagley and those guys and
1: kevin mackey was recruiting for tom davis Yep, mackey's on our scouting staff great guy great coach you know and he tells the stories you know ironically at umass our base in recruiting was connecticut and so was mackey's yeah he got mike adams he got john garris he got john bagley we had Harper Williams, Mike Williams, Marcus Canby, you know, so, but yeah, those were those were phenomenal
0: days. So wow. I want to say, how did UMass get these players? I'm looking back at the first guys I remember. I remember Jim McCoy. Yeah. And he Jim, was a beast. Yeah. He's from great Pittsburgh, memory. right? Yeah, So great Calipari's from Pittsburgh. Yes. Is that how? Yes. John knew his whole
1: family. His dad was a great player. John knew his dad, knew his mom, and... You know, he was kind of a sleeper there. You know, Pittsburgh doesn't get recruited that heavily. He said, hey, I got this skinny kid that can really score. And I think he's still the all-time leading scorer. I think so. And couldn't go left, and you couldn't stop him, yeah. which is kind of a theme in the NBA. You'd be amazed. A lot of fans may not know this, but there are more good players in the NBA that can go one way and one way only. Wow. And even though it's on the game plan to force them this way or force them that way, they get to their strong hand. And that's always been one of my big things I learned at a young age is how many good players only have one hand. And if you can teach them to have their weak hand become as good as their strong hand, you know, it makes a total difference in your ability to make plays and to
0: score. Being able to shoot to your weak hand. Like, like just thinking of my basic game, I can definitely go right. Going left, I can go, but I'd rather pull up and shoot to my left than and that's, my right. That's so, like, a ma- lot of guys use that, right?
1: That's the majority of right-hand players. If you look at Kyle Lowry, he's unstoppable going left. Yeah. When he go, and Tobias Harris is that way. Uh, there's been a few good ones, and the reason why is when you go left as a right-hander, your footwork and your release are quicker because your right hand is your inside hand. So it's just a smoother, quicker shot. If you're a right hander and you're going right off the dribble, you got to turn your entire body to the right and get your hips square and get that. Yeah, you have right- to load up everything. Yeah, and where you're almost all set when you go left. And it's a slower shot and it's more uncomfortable. So most righties drive right if they're going right and they shoot a pull up if they're going left. Yeah. You know, but with player development, you should be able to do everything, and that's something that uh, the Pacers we work on. With all our guys, you know, trying to be uh, ambidextrous and not have, you know, be limited to just going in one one direction, but you got to work on it. But yeah, that's a good point. A couple of guys, Kobe Bryant and Paul Pierce, both started out. Even Michael started out going left to a jumper, and they ended up getting really good at going right to a jumper. Yeah, you know, but it's it's a different
0: shot. It's a tougher shot. I even sure. think. Turning over your right shoulder is easier than turning yes. over your left shoulder. 100%. I mean, that's more natural. Yes, yes. And speaking of that, this guy, I I the started. The man. Yeah, this is the closest <laughs> I could get to wearing a Paces shirt. I'm a I got a great Celtics story. Guy. I got a great story. Oh, we can we can have the whole Larry Bird podcast yeah, if yeah. you want to do
1: that. Well, playing at UMass for two years and coaching and getting to know Bird and being in situations with him and listening to tell listening listening to him tell stories. I would have friends that would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars just to be at one of those 15 minute meetings.
0: Well, he's one of the guys, if you said, name three people you could have dinner with. Yeah. He's probably the yeah. on my list. Yeah. And you, I mean, he's still involved with you guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's funny. He's got a great
1: sense of humor. It's dry. When he's in a bad mood, you don't want to be around him. You know, when he was... <laughs> the president and everything was falling on him, you know, you have a lot of pressure in that position. And there were some days where I'd see him and just, hey Larry, and just keep it moving. Cause you could just see his, you know, he wasn't in the mood to talk. But when you could get him in a talking mood, he tells stories, it's unbelievable to hear him. And you know, they're all true. Like he told a story to our young kids during one summer league, cause Kevin Pritchard asked him at a, we had a dinner, we took all our draft picks and our young guys. and. Larry tell the guys what you did in the summer how you prepared for the season and you know he said in his draw he said well you know I, I didn't have you know all these specialists that you guys have you guys seem to got like one guy for shooting one guy for you know your physical workouts he goes heck I couldn't even get my brother to shag for me he, <laughs> said, he said so I'd come home in the summer he said I'd usually run you know a couple miles. He said, I don't know why I did that. All I did was wear my knees out. He said, but then I go in the gym and he said, I'd be up at six and get my run in and I go in the gym and I just shoot the balls and chase them down and keep shooting. And he said, you know, a lot of times I make 70, 80 threes in a row and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm wasting my time. Let me go work on my left hand. (laughs) He said, but I did it on my own, but I was in the gym. I wish I had that problem. Yeah, every day. And uh, he said, I just put the work in and. He said some of the McHale and and some of the other guys would get upset that Chris Ford and the coaches always ran the end of game plays for Larry. And Larry's like, I don't know why you get mad, Kevin. He goes, I know I'm making that shot. You know how I know I'm making it? Because I've made it 10,000 times in the offseason these last five or six years. So I know I'm doing it. You know, I know I'm making that shot. That's why he runs the play for me, you know. Just a truly a legend, Larry legend and a really good guy. Really good, down to earth good guy. When Nate hired me there,
0: obviously I had a relationship with Nate and with Kevin Pritchard. So uh, for the listeners, Nate McMillan, the current coach of the paces you coached under in Portland. Yes. And Kevin Pritchard you were a coach or a GM I GA coached at him at Kansas. Kansas yeah when I was young so he was we, a freshman yeah
1: we developed a friendship i was think i was 23 and kevin's the
0: current GM uh, or president, president president of the paces yeah
1: but anyway so nate said look the job's yours but larry does want to meet you it's you know don't think of it as an interview i'm like man nate i said well i'm i'm nervous he goes <laughs> you're nervous what are you nervous for i go it's larry bird i've never met the guy i said you know, I grew up watching him, and I said, "You know," he said, "just he's a regular guy. Just go talk basketball with him, tell him what your plan is to help me, to help the players." And we had
0: a, <clears throat> a great meeting, but I was I was scared to death walking in there. That's funny, coming <laughs> from a guy like you. You've met tons of people. Yeah. You, it's not like he's the first superstar you've met, but Larry just carries this different aura yeah, about un- him.
1: And until you've met him, you know, I I was. Close friends with Barkley and Jordan during my Vegas years. I worked Michael's Fantasy Camp, and that was. Can we back, get any of those stories? Today? That was back in my wild <laughs> days. I, <laughs> no, those I, I can't tell those. Those will be in a book if I ever decide to write a book. I'll put those in there. But so I have. Yeah, I've been around tons of famous people. I've always never been a you know fan fan. I've never asked anyone for an autograph. You know, it's just not who I am. And. Um, but meeting Larry was—I um, went in there with butterflies in my stomach for sure. Afterwards, it was—I I was like Nate, you're absolutely right. He was—it was the easiest, you know, thirty minutes
0: talking to a president of a team I've ever had. Who broke the ice? Did he say something? Uh, I'm trying to think. I can see him cracking a joke or something. Yeah,
1: he well, he knew I was close with Pritchard, so he he made fun of Pritchard. Okay. But they always go back at each other. So here's another funny story. When Larry was talking to the team about his summer workouts, afterwards, Kevin interrupted and would always just tease him because Larry's so competitive. He said, he said, Larry, tell the guys who you were most afraid of in the NBA. <laughs> Larry just turned bright red till he you know, was about to blow a gasket. And you know, then he just started laughing because he knew Kevin was, but when he first said it, you could just see the intensity in his face. Like I ain't scared of nobody and never was. Yeah, I
0: never said I was scared of anybody. The greatest
1: clip ever. You go Google him coming out of the timeout and telling Xavier McDaniel where he was going to get the ball and where he was going to do, and he did exactly that. And that goes back to the story he was telling our guys that he put the work in. He had made that shot thousands of times, you know, in his mind under pressure. Three, two, one, counting down, um, and he knew he was going to make it. And then the other interesting thing when we he came back to us. Uh, to Boston when we played this year in the playoffs for the first two games. And when they showed him on the Jumbotron, the crowd went absolutely nuts. And I could see a guy directly across from me in the front row. He was sitting courtside. I couldn't hear his voice, but you could. I could uh, read his lips and his accent. Oh, my God, that's Larry Bird. You know, I was... <laughs> But our one assistant, Dan Burke, who worked with Larry, he was like, way to go, Larry. You just got the crowd fired up. You know, yeah. the crowd went absolutely yeah, nuts I remember and that. the energy level rose and
0: it probably helped Boston a lot more than it helped us. I heard that, and I heard this recently, he broke his thumb playing softball and that's why he shot the way he did. Because uh-huh. like he had a weird release and I guess he, he had to launch it from kind of over his head because of yeah, it a softball un- injury.
1: It was unorthodox. But that's, you know, funny because if you look at a lot of retired NBA players, their hands are mangled. Their fingers are going four different directions. Nate's pinky is basically at a right angle. His right pinky is like
0: three inches. He was always putting his hand in the cookie jar. Well,
1: and you're always, you know, you're aggressive. You're a good defensive player. And, and you know, you're going to get slapped on your hands. And these guys are so strong and yeah. big. And Larry's hands are the same way. You look at his hands. They're just they're all broken. Every wow. one of them has been broken. I mean, they were... Legitimate tough guys. I think our league's gotten soft, but it's good for the fans because it's it's more offense. Yep. Um, but it does revert back to the play. They they let them be more physical, but it's nothing like it was, you know, back in the day with the hand checking and you know that's why that they were all game. out fist fights because guys just had the freedom. And they
0: coach. just cleaned it up and they said, all right, let's go play. They didn't even throw guys out for that stuff. Back yeah, down. yeah,
1: not not, not Technical often here and there, yeah,
0: but not often. One last thing about Larry. I, I can honestly say as a kid, he wasn't even my favorite player. Who was? Well, the reason why he wasn't my favorite player is he was like, Big he guy. was basketball Jesus. Yeah. He was like above the players. Like I didn't even look at him as one of the players. Like seriously. <laughs> yeah. I had yeah. his po- posters all over my wall. But yeah. if you ask my, my favorite player was uh, Dominique because he was flying through the air and doing all that stuff. But Larry was... Larry was a god. He was basketball Jesus. That's what we called him. Yeah.
1: And speaking of Dominique, Dominique's a great guy. I've had a chance to meet him. I actually was in Starbucks when we I heard he them. was
0: a world-class stick man back in his day.
1: Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Well, I met his daughter actually at a Starbucks. Um, I think she was living in Orlando, and I overheard her talking, and she, I, I said, oh, you're Dominique's daughter? He said, yeah. And I met... So when I saw Dominique, I said, "Hey, I met your daughter in Starbucks. Really nice girl." And he was a great guy. He he talked, but he and Larry would always tease. You. They were friends, competitive friends. But sure. so K. P. Pritchard, Kevin Pritchard, uh, told Larry, you know, they just built a statue of Dominique in front of uh, Phillips Arena, and Larry went, "Yeah," he said, "Tell him I said it, I, it's definitely not in a defensive stance." <laughs> They yeah, had some, some funny story. Yo, badass. God, Dominique was a scoring machine. That's a, you know, that's a big comp they're using now with Kevin Durant's Achilles injuries. Yeah, he and was. Dominique never the same. had it. At, well, he had two good years after that, but that was it. You know, and he I came think to was, Boston
0: and the Clippers. Yeah, and then that. he ended
1: up going to Greece. So it's a shame to see what happened to KD. I feel awful for him. He's such a good person. Represents the NBA well and take so much what people don't realize is that you know and we know this in the media you got to generate buzz and but i think you know kd is one of the most misunderstood guys and you know he gets on social media and maybe brings some of it on himself but that kid has a pure heart he loves the game he's a great human being my mom called me the night he did his speech and was like in tears at how much love he gave his mom his mvp speech yeah you know i mean just a you know a great great guy so hopefully he comes back um but achilles at 30 is a tough thing yep tough thing i think he will you know but even watching him early in that game And it's easy to play the blame game. I do think you have to err on the side of caution and, you know, but I'm sure he felt 100%. But I remember watching his first two or three trips down the court and he was going gingerly and you could see, to me anyway, it looked like he was really, you know, being a little bit uh, cautious in his movements. And he was shooting all spot yeah, And I'm like, all right, he can do this And, and... You know, I was pulling for Nick Nurse, my guy in Toronto, and and Kyle and those guys. I'm like, man, if he just hits threes and you know plays solid D, this this could be a game changer. It's tough to
0: dial it back, especially in a first move off the
1: dribble, explosive move, and the calf's related to the Achilles. And uh, yeah, it's it's a shame. And then but such bad luck with Clay, and what a tough guy Clay is running in the hallway on an ACL, like just trying to will himself. I'm not hurt. I'm going to come play. Yeah, I heard he told Kerr, I'll be back out in 30 seconds. Well, they showed him in the hallway doing sprints on a torn ACL that he didn't know it was torn at the time. It'll be interesting. One of the the best things about the NBA for me is every year there are tons of new storylines, mysteries, questions. Who's going to get who? How do they fit? Who's going to be the surprise team? There's always two or three teams and we've been one of them where everyone said they're not gonna be any good. You know, KP and Larry pulled off the depot and Sabonis trade that everybody killed at the time. Everybody it's,
0: murdered that trade.
1: Yeah, and it, it totally changed our team and we ended up getting two, you know, one all-star and then Sabonis who I think is gonna be a starter and a 12, 13, 14 year player and a straight winner
0: the run you guys had without Oladipo, it's a testament to the organization, the staff, to stay focused, to to keep your playoff seating. I mean, you guys didn't regress at all and you lost your best player who I'm not sure, but his usage rate had to be probably one of the highest in the league, right?
1: Yeah, and he, w- he was our go-to guy. Um, and it is, it's a credit to, and our organization, uh, Kevin has started a culture, we call it 3T and it's called togetherness, Uh, toughness and trust and we do a bunch of things with it we have sayings up on the wall in the locker room we send out you know mass text messages to players in the organization on examples of during the game like Lance Stevenson made a layup got fouled and like 10 guys jumped off the bench and pulled him up stuff like that And, and so that I think had a lot to do with you know us maintaining that run and it you know, first it goes to to KP for putting the players together, and then it, you know Nate for you know his ability to, to keep the guys focused, and um, and then you got to give the players a ton of credit. Yeah. The good news is it helped Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich went from being a really a third option to the first option, yeah. and he really blew up. We're we're hoping to re-sign him. We would have our backs to the wall if we don't get Bogie back. He was such a great addition, and I've always been a big proponent of having more European players. I just think I, I've ran the Euro camp for Adidas for 10-plus years, and they just – they're all pros at a young age. They're all coached aggressively, you know, getting screamed and they're yelled. at soft. Yeah, getting screamed and yelled at. When they don't, they question it. You know, Bogey will even say sometimes we're too soft on our guys, you know, because they're just used to being – Cursed and yelled at, you know, by the European coaches, yeah. and but they all play the right way. They, you know, they move the ball. They're about ball movement. I really think they've helped the NBA. The influx these last twenty years of European players have helped the NBA become less of a one-on-one isolation league that it always was, and more of a free-flowing ball movement. It started with the Spurs. You know, they had the majority of their roster was international yeah. guys, um, all different countries. So, yeah, and Sabonis and Bogdanovich really helped that with us it helped help make us a a team of of pass first you know we had a lot of guys uh, nate's goal is 25 and then he even moved it up to 30 assists and we hit that 30 number a lot and you know we averaged close to 25 so as you know it's 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 the sum of the parts that's most important you know you you look at toronto you know they had Kawhi, but they had a bunch of just really good solid role players
0: uh, Well, it's nice to see guys step up. Like you said, it's nice to see every season, the different storylines. See a guy like Siakam, you know. And Van Vliet. Van Vliet. Like these guys, it's really cool to see him be that Think about
1: this. We talked about this a lot. You look at the NBA, and then you look at college, and you see the Dukes and the Kentuckys of the world. And yeah, you have your Zions, you have your ADs, but think about this. Of all the great players in the league, how many came from small colleges? Siakam, unrecruited New Mexico State, C.J. McCollum, Lehigh,
0: Van Vliet, Wichita. Van State. Vliet, Wichita
1: well, Wichita was more of a major, but um, Dame Lillard, Weber
0: State. Yeah, you know Steph Davidson, and uh, I was gonna say uh, I think Kawhi might be the best that I can think of, the best all-time player to not come from like a yeah, big school or and a big pedigree was, or know, San
1: Diego State at the time. You know they had taken their you know program to where they were a top 25 team, but they still weren't one of the blue bloods.
0: I actually saw him play at UNLV when he was there. Yeah, And I mean, I saw that, that was like their big rival at the time because they were the two best teams in the league.
1: Yeah. But But it's amazing how many, and it's a great lesson for some of these young kids, you know, that you don't have to go to Duke or Kentucky to make it, you just got to hone your craft. And you don't have to
0: be the top three pick in the draft. Yeah. To yeah. be the guy.
1: And I think that's good for the NBA, but there's a, t- you know, Ja Morant's going to be another example, um, you know, of a mid-major, low-major kid,
0: you yep. know, that uh, nobody really wanted. Do you know he came to our run uh, like a couple weeks before you were there? Oh, did he? He was there with Ray. Did you shut him down? I wasn't there. <laughs> I would have. I would have locked him up. Yeah, imagine trying to stay in front of that guy. <laughs> oh, man, I, I,
1: I think he might end up. I If you put a gun to my head, I'd say he's going to be the best player in this draft when yeah. it's all said and done I mean, 15, 20 years from now. Because he, to me, he's Russell Westbrook. Yep. He's a better passer at the same age and a much, much better three-point shooter. Yep. You know, Russell has, you know, a freak killer frame of mind and the will to win. And
0: Yeah, does Ja have that?
1: I think he does. You know, Westbrook's stronger, so Ja's got to physically improve his body. but. Yep that's the only thing you have to improve. It's certainly a whole lot easier than improving your shot. You know, I think that's one thing, you know, Russell's never been able to, you know, become a consistent, you know, even average three point shooter. He's streaky. Yeah. Um, well,
0: this year he was like historically bad. Yeah, shooting.
1: yeah. And I think as he's getting older and, you know, his usage rate and he plays so hard, he can be a detriment to himself and he doesn't want to come out. You know, he's one of those guys, he wants to play 40 every
0: night. Um, Speaking of freakish athletes like Westbrook, let's talk about high school, Bill Bayno, <laughs> Goshen, New York. Yeah, small town Catholic
1: school. Played for my dad, who passed away uh, in Thanksgiving,
0: uh, right after Thanksgiving. Legendary coach in your area. Yeah,
1: and good. You know, had a great life. 83 years old. It's you know we all have to go through it. It's yep. one of the hardest times I've ever had to deal with, and I'm still dealing with it. But yeah, I was a small town kid, and I. I, I learned to play on the streets of Newburgh, which, you know, was... A I heard that. Economically... Yeah, you know, Newburgh's uh, highest rough. Highest murder rate in New York still to this day, which is sad that it hasn't improved. Um, but I learned so much about life, and that's where I became a player. You know, being the only white kid, you know, in the projects down there, you know, you see things that just... It made me a better person. It made me want to help and give back because it was institutional racism was so obvious there. The schools were terrible. The the kids, you know, had really no help or support. Um, And and like all inner cities, you know, you either find a way out or you you get caught up in that street life because there aren't a whole lot of options. But yeah, so that's Newburgh was really where I became a player. I was a late bloomer. I, I got better as the years went on, and then Hubie Brown screwed me. He cut me with the Knicks. I heard that. <laughs> now, Hubie's a great friend. He, yeah, I knew I, I knew I was gonna have a hard time making the team when he was calling me Banyo. He didn't know, he <laughs>
0: yeah. didn't know how to say my first name. This is when he had the the perm, right? Yeah, I was permed yeah. out. Hubie. his
1: practices, woof, you know, I learned a ton. You know, as a coach, just from going through his training camp, and how long he, were you there? A few weeks? No, it was a one-week deal. You okay. know, we did like a rookie camp, so we brought in twenty guys. Pat Ewing, you know, was a rookie that year, and Edmund Sherrod, I remember, was yeah. a point guard. And then they took, I think, four or five guys from that camp and brought them to the vet camp. Um, but it was a great experience. And then Hubie and I worked at the uh, Benetton Treviso camp yeah. as as. Lecturers, you know after that, and we told stories and laughed he's a great great
0: guy he would be I love listening to him still. yeah yeah he's uh just total package just one game he was like, you know how he talks he says dirk nowitzki he's six ten he can shoot the ball he can he, he he holds it over his head so it's even higher than that next time down the court he's six eleven he can shoot the ball <laughs> from range next time down he's seven feet he can shoot the <laughs> Franny from
1: does an unbelievable Hubie Brown oh, imitation. Yeah, Franny uh, Franny should do it on ESPN one day because he he worked the Eurocamp with us for years and he had Hubie down to a T. But Hubie's a legend and a great 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 person and has been a gr- good friend to me and you know I'll always appreciate
0: everything he did for me and how he's treated me over the years. I'd like you to tell that story about uh, what was it the sectional final or the state final yeah. your dad's drawing up a play for you to get the ball maybe ice it with some free throws you guys are up by a couple
1: yeah true story so we're a small catholic school we're playing a public school ellenville high school and ellenville is in the Catskills, so a lot of them came up from the city so a lot of them were, were city kids they were all all black we were pretty we were all white i don't even think we had a a black kid on the those team. Those are those
0: camps that, like, Wilt Chamberlain used to go to. Yeah, and... yeah, Cutchers
1: up there. Yep. Yeah, they were good, good camps. But they had a really, really good team. A lot of my teammates had never played in the inner city, and so there was a little intimidation yep. there. And I was cocky. I mean, I was the coach's son. I thought I was all this. You know, that environment playing against those guys was something that was second nature to me. So coming out of a timeout I think we were up one or two and it was under a minute to go we and they were uh, famous for their press and so you know you
0: knew they're going to be overplaying.
1: yeah and my dad drew up a press breaker and there was a sophomore that took it out that looked up to me that I knew I could you know bully (laughs) so we walked onto the court and it was packed it was at Sullivan Community College it was probably four or five thousand people in there and I said, Mark, that play my dad just drew up? He goes, yeah, I got it. I said, no, we're not running that. <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean? I said, we're not running it. I said, they're going to deny me. I said, so I'm going to come back to the ball like you know my dad drew up, but I'm going to fake and go back door. Just throw it up. I'm going to go down and dunk it. You're going to be a hero. I'm going to be a hero, and we're going to win the game. And he's like, I can't do it. Your dad's going to kill me. I said, I'm going to kill you if you don't do it. So he gave in to me and threw a perfect pass. So I, I had a screening action, I went to the ball, I knew they were gonna be denied, so I you know, made a good cut and went back door and I was wide open, I had them by 10 or 15 feet. And he threw a perfect pass, soft, and I'm getting ready to catch it, and they had the scoreboard in the middle, the big uh, square, and it hit the scoreboard. Uh, and so now we're down by my, our team's bench. And my dad is trying to get to me to kill me, <laughs> and our other assistant Dick O'Neill, who was six eight, you know, and had these long arms, and I'm just hearing every curse word known to him. so I just jog back down and ignore him like I can't hear him. And thank God we got to stop and we ended up winning the game. But wow. that that was a true story, and if I can tell it now because we won, but if I lost, That's if we lost, I probably wouldn't be telling it. But the, the the famous dunk my players always tease me because I got it on film was I had a dunk in the Rucker League All Star Game in 1985 on a six nine guy, so I saved the footage just because all your players think they're the only ones that could play and they yeah, all thought yeah. I could never play and so I'm I get teased all the time for bringing that out and you know reliving the the golden years but it's. The Rucker League was like my NBA, I got cut by the NBA and I would play there in the summers against pros and it was the most fun I ever had playing, playing in Harlem and in front of those crowds and the showtime and the entertainment, everybody had a nickname and not surprisingly my name was Wild Bill (laughs) (laughs) for for various reasons, Um, but those were good times. True or false, you, you scored 53 hungover? Uh, I don't think I was hungover. I don't think I could have scored it hungover, um, but I did have 53 one game. Playing outdoors, it's a shame kids don't do it anymore. I'm sure you played our, in our generation. Like some of my moments, I'll never ever forget were the runs I had outdoors in the Rucker League. was West fourth and just playing on the playgrounds. There was just something for me that was basket basketball romantic as pure as it gets yeah yeah and and you know the games were competitive and tough but then we'd all go to a local watering hole and drink and tell stories and you know it's nothing like it even today like when i go back to new york city i I see kids shooting around but none of them are real players i don't ever see any real pickup run on on the courts and back when i was growing up you had certain courts both in bridgeport you know uh, in the inner city there and New York City, you go to any playground, there'd be like, you know, you had to win to stay on. If you lost, you had to sit four or five games. Mm -hmm. And so they were competitive and they were fun and kids don't do it nowadays. And I think, you know, it's affected us uh, as a country in terms of our, our growth and development. Kids now will only play if it's indoors. They play AAU. You know, there's not that, I don't think, competitive. When you're playing five games a day in AAU without really practicing it all becomes one-on-one and selfish brand and there's, of basketball. There's
0: something you learn from going into a neighborhood where you're not comfortable yeah. and playing with kids you don't really know and they don't know if you're any good and you have to prove yourself. Yeah. There's 100%. something you can't like playing on a team doesn't yeah. just doesn't create that cuz when you're in a team atmosphere you're coming in as oh this is Bill Bano, he averages 17 a game. So they know this is this guy. Mm-hmm. But when you're just a white dude walking on the court and Wherever you were playing in Newburgh yeah. or in the Rucker League or wherever, you have to prove yourself. You're a zero and you gotta go
1: Yeah, and the the other thing is you're playing against older guys. Like yep. my advice to any young kids and my I have a lot of good friends that have sons that are growing up now is they gotta go into the inner city and they gotta play against the best. Yep. And they gotta play against older guys. Like I I have children I adopted and one of my sons I adopted, he's actually a player development coach for Scotty Brooks in Washington. Nice. But I adopted him from Italy. His dad was a uh, in the military from Roxbury. No way. Yeah, and uh, ended up divorcing you know, uh, my son's mom and then went back to Boston. And I met him working the Benetton Treviso camp. And he was the only black kid out of 300 campers. So I kind of called what's him over. What's his name? Isaac Jenkins. I called him over and I said, what's your deal? And he's a seven-year-old kid with these big eyes. And he said, what do you mean? I said... <laughs> You're the only brother here. I said, there's all white kids. He's, now, he said, oh, my papa's black. He's, he's from Boston. Um, I said, oh, I want to meet him. He said, oh, you know, he's, he's no longer here. He left me. And that kind of just hit home with me, and I developed a close relationship with him, and I ended up reuniting him with his dad, who was still a cop in Boston, great guy. And so that's something that uh, I'll always be proud of. But I was working him out one day in my hometown, and my nickname growing up was Billy Snow because I was the only white kid, you know, down in the projects. They call me Snowboy, Billy Snow, Snow White, whatever. Yeah. So one of my old, we call them old heads, who kind of looked after me and took care of me uh, was uh, Rudy Charles. And his older brother, Mike, would play with us, but was significantly older. And he just happened to be driving by. I was working. Isaac out, and I was really tough on him. He told me he wanted to be a Division One player, and I think he was 12 at the time. So I put him through these killer workouts and make him do sprints, and then we would play one on one. And I was still young and good then, and fairly, you know, compared to a young eighth grader. And so I would physically beat him up. You need and, that, yeah. And so he started. I overdid it, and he started crying. So I went over, put my arm around him. And I said, "Look, I'm doing this to make you better. I love you." I said, you, "There's no. This isn't about anything other than trying to make you tough. You have to understand that. This is how hard you have to play." And when I was your age, and just as I was telling the story, Michael Charles drives by. Honks his horn. And he goes, "Snow, snow, what's up?" And he comes up. I go, "Come here, Michael." And he comes up. I said, "When I said this is my son. He's 12 years old. I adopted him from Italy. You know, I mentor him. I didn't fully adopt him, but." He would come visit me and spend time with me, and I said, "Tell him what you used to do to me when I was your age." And he said, "We used to kick your mf and ass, you know." And
0: this isn't a family show. So and and free, Isaac
1: right? looked up, and I said, "Now, do you think I planned this, Isaac? I haven't seen Michael in two years. I don't get back here much." And and after that, he stopped crying, and he's like, "Let's get back to work." Yep. And and Michael would, Mike, those guys would beat me up and physically challenged me, but it made me tougher and it, it made me a player. And I, I think all young kids should play against older guys. And, you know, for any of the suburban kids, you got to go in this inner city because yeah. that's where the best players are. And yep. like you said, it you, you got to, it takes you out of your comfort zone. You know, you, you have to put yourselves in position because you're going to be in uncomfortable
0: positions. And you, you learn know? to play a different way. You play the suburban way, you play the city way. It's, yeah. it's different styles of basketball.
1: Yeah, yeah for sure. The Barry. Yeah,
0: my best friend's from there. Yeah. Uh, Elton Tyler. Oh, I know Elton. Yep. Played at Miami, right? Yep. Yeah. yep. Trying
1: to Yeah. I tried to get Randall Jackson who went to Florida State yep. when I got the UNLV job. Another Roxbury, it was too yeah. late. Yeah, yeah. Leo <laughs> Papil from BABC. Oh, yeah. You know Leo? Oh, good friend. He leg- lives down here now. Legend, I know. Trust me, he loves Miami. He's got his dogs probably out on the paddleboard out in the ocean as yep. we speak. He, he always had the best players. Boston's an underrated city for talent. Yeah, I don't
0: think people realize that. Yeah, they, BABC is just a yeah, powerhouse. Yeah. They just, a lot of them don't go to school in Boston. They all leave because we yeah, have all they, the prep schools out right, there. Right, right. So people don't realize they're from Boston. Yeah, yeah. Nobody goes to school in New York City anymore either.
1: Yeah, New York basketball has really fallen off. I think, uh, you know, the, the AAU kind of culture has taken over there and the hype. I think that the best players that have come out of New York have been underhyped. The overhyped guys, it's so hard to live up to those expectations. Yeah. Felipe, Lenny it, yeah. Cook. And it changes you mentally. When you're getting told you're the greatest thing since sliced bread at a young age, it's going to affect you negatively. You know, there isn't enough tough love. There aren't enough, you know, good AAU coaches. A lot of them were paying these kids. The gauchos and Riverside, mm-hmm. there was so much competition to get them. Kids were either getting free gear, or they were getting money to come play, and it was just a, a bad mix. I think Team USA, or USA Basketball and the NCAA are, are you know doing a lot. You know, I know Adidas. I used to run the Adidas Nations camp, and Nike are, you know, really trending towards having these developmental camps where they're not you know kissing the kids' butts and they're giving them tough love and they're teaching them and coaching them hard and aggressively which you know has helped us i think our our basketball has gone up at a time there it was it was ugly you know where it was just everything was one-on-one and everything was about the hype and the ooh and the ah instead of playing the game the right way and that's why i think you know you got to give the european players a ton of credit because they've come over here and really brought the culture of teamwork and unselfishness and ball movement and body movement and you know one of our big things that in the Pacers is, it doesn't matter who scores. The open man gets the ball, mm-hmm. and we will win. Now, obviously, Vic, Bogey, we're going to run plays for you at the end of the game, you know, but it, you, and it's what the Warriors formula is. It's just nonstop cutting, ball movement, passing, slipping, you know, and they're a joy to watch. And, uh, you know, Clay Thompson's another name we mentioned, lightly recruited, went to Washington True. State when Washington State was the bottom of the Pac-12 and you know, he and Tony Bennett together, I think Tony coached him. You know, they had some success there, but
0: nobody recruited Clay. UCLA didn't want him, USC didn't want him, nobody wanted him. How do you feel about the way basketball's changed and positionless basketball? And I mean, do you guys really look for, hey, we need a point guard, we need a two guard, does that exist?
1: Yes, but you also, in the draft, you want the best player um, in free agency you go for need. Um, sometimes you go for need in the draft depending on who it is and the makeup of your team. but one thing I will say you know like everyone's making a huge deal that the NBA has quote unquote changed they're playing faster you know there is more emphasis on analytics in terms of the best shots are getting to the rim, shooting a corner three or free throws. Mm-hmm. Um, long twos are a right. dinosaur. But and, and I'm a believer in analytics, but it's only just a piece. It's not a video game where you can just plug in players and with their percentages. There's so many other things that go into coaching and the chemistry of a team, but I would laugh at people that would say the NBA's faster now. When, when Oh, I when Larry Burr, the Celtics, the Sixers, the Lakers, they were running out of the net. They were shooting the ball out of the net. Yep. You know, in 4 or 5 seconds. And then if they didn't have it, you know, they'd play basketball, but they were scoring in the 130s back in the 80s.
0: In the Coozie days, they would come up the court, pass the ball, shoot. They yeah. would never pass the ball around. Yeah. It, it yeah. they I think their shot attempts were they were averaging like 30 more shots a game right. than they do now. You think about that was Red Arback. You think about yeah. how ahead of
1: the time he was. He wanted to play fast because he knew if you played fast, you got easier shots. Yep. The defense wasn't set. You could have a five on four, and someone's going to get a shot. if you. And the key is, A, getting a stop and rebounding, but getting that outlet quick. And the Celtics teams were all, the quicker you get that ball, that outlet to the point guard, and get it up the court. And most point guards defensively, there are exceptions. Westbrook is one that comes to mind. But most don't crash. So all coaches are telling your point guard, get back. So that point guard A, and it's always been a focus of mine with, with our point guards, the more rebounds you have no blockout. You're the only guy that ninety percent of the time you don't have a blockout yeah. responsibility. So Jason Kidd was great at it. He yeah. figured that out early. I think one year he might average nine defensive rebounds a game, yeah. or maybe more. Um, And so you get that, and now any time a guard gets a rebound that can push it, you're five on four at worst. Sometimes you're five on three. And the other thing, and Steve Nash would do this, for all the point guards out there that might be listening, on any shot, make or miss, you've got to get your back to the sideline so that you can see if the defense is coming. You can't catch the ball with your back to the basket. If you do, it's on the passer not to throw it to you. He's your eyes there but most point guards are getting back. So Nash would have his head on a swivel back to the sideline. Baron Davis used to do it. And if he saw his man back, he would just keep cheating up the floor. So that outlet pass would get to him at half court sometimes. So now that pass, and I used to demonstrate it with our players, a throw ahead pass, I would line up my fastest players. And then I'd put a wing up on the wing. I'd say, all right, we're going to have a race. And they thought I was going to race them with the ball. And so we'd They'd say, go, and I'd just throw yeah, the ball up pass against the and be 25, race. 30 feet ahead of them. Yeah. And it would, you know, kind of put a light on their head that, yeah, the hit ahead. And that's why I think Lonzo Ball is going to be a good player because I think he'll he end always up get does it. That. Yeah, he and, and you know, Ricky Rubio is another player that, that does it. You know, the unselfish guys do it. You know, Toronto does it. They all do it. They hit ahead. Um, but, uh, yeah, for any point guards out there
0: listening, hopefully those tips help you. Talk about your first chance as a head coach. You get the UNLV job because of the success at UMass. And yeah, you no one over. else wanted it. Yeah, they were, <laughs> they they were, were all like...
1: afraid of it. Everyone was afraid. And I was just a young kid that was still learning. I had a chance to learn from one of the best in John Calipari. Um, so I had nothing to lose. I wasn't afraid of it. And, yeah, we, we were number one in the country. And so that had a lot to do with it. Mark Warkentine who was a longtime Rebel coach under Tark in the glory days and was an NBA executive. I think he's still in the league now. He was with the Knicks, he was with the Blazers. He's been doing it, God, probably 40 years. He helped me get the job because he was still connected and I knew Mark because he used to come watch us play and watch Camby and Lou Rowe and all our guys and he liked our teams. He said our teams reminded him of Vegas with yeah. their toughness and togetherness. Athleticism, yeah, and that's a great story. So I go out to interview and I meet with Kenny Gwynn, who was the governor, but had taken over the presidency for one dollar just to help the school get out of you know some financial debt and to fix the basketball situation. Which, when Tark left, you know they really struggled. Uh, you know things didn't work out with Rowley and then they had three former assistants that took the job, rigorous. and things, yeah, things didn't work out there. So, you know, he he interviewed me and he said, look, I really like what I'm hearing, you know, but I got to talk to a couple other guys. And And you're 29, 30 around then? I'm 30, I think I was 31, but I turned 32 a month after they hired me. Okay. but So we go through the interview process and he said, look, I can't force you to do this and it may not work out, but all I'm telling you is if I were you, I would not leave Vegas. Stay here, this may take two days, this may take three days, it may take a week so he put me up in the in a suite in the Tropicana you know he's like look don't try not to be seen don't do any media interviews so I had a deal with the lady at the desk I said look anyone that calls my room here's a list of names you know and if this name isn't on the if if someone calls and the name isn't on the list please put them on hold call me tell me who it is and I'll tell you you know say yeah he's not staying here there's no one here you know just and so we would do this, and I said, and now if anyone is on this list, just tell them to ring the room once, hang up, and call right back, because I didn't life want life was a lot difficult of
0: before cell phones.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I didn't want people to know I was there, because, you know, in college coaching, you're trying to get a job. There's a lot of negativity out there. So the less people that knew I might have a shot yeah. at the job, the less people that would be killing me or calling up the president or saying bad things about me. I learned that from Cal, you know, in the, the the cutthroat life of college basketball, and how to get a job. But so I'd go out for runs and put a hat on, and so finally the, the operator called me, and after like two or three days, she was getting like a hundred calls a day, like all the media. The word had got out that Baino was supposed to be in the trap. and she's like, "Can I ask you a question? Who are you?" <laughs> and I said, "I'm I'm nobody, really." I said, "But I'm trying to become." The next head coach of the Rebels, so please keep it a secret. She goes, Oh, I love the Rebels. Don't worry. I'll, I'll protect you. And so I ended up hanging out there, and Herb Sendek came in to interview, and he decided, you know, it was a hard job. He turned it down, and they hired me. And, you know, it's the old joke you hear coaches say all the time, I wasn't my wife's first choice either, but I definitely wasn't UNLV's first choice. But I went into it with a nothing to lose attitude, and uh, I learned a lot being there, you know, and everybody knows my story. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and if I honestly think, if I didn't go through the pressure there, I probably would still be drinking. But you know, the, in the off season, you know my my addiction and my disease got worse. Um, you know, I rarely ever drank during the season, but you know what I learned in, in my with my alcoholism was once the season was over, and we had success almost every single year there, except my first. It was kind of like all right I could take a deep breath I survived a year and now I can reward myself and that's when I my party and would you know go to other levels and you know it was hard in Vegas being young all your friends come out and you're the king of Vegas and you can go anywhere do anything everything's paid for everything's comped and you can imagine you know what stays in Vegas what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas but when I write my book it'll Trust hey, me, people, there'll be left, some great stories. You left the alcohol there, that's good. Yeah, no, and, and it, it got me sober. I really don't think, I, you know, it made me realize, you know what, you really do have a problem. So it changed my life in a good way, and it's my journey, and I have no regrets, and I wouldn't take any of it back, because I really think I had to to go through that and to fail there to kind of learn how to reinvent myself, and it all started with being sober, and you know, I tell my story as much as I can because it's helped people. I, I can't tell you how many – every team I've gone to kind of does a story on my past and my redemption and what I went through. And Toronto did a little mini documentary. I read a couple of them. Yeah, there's a good uh, – they did a little mini documentary on what they call Open Gym. So if you Google Bill Baino Open Gym Toronto Raptors, you know, I kind of go in-depth to, you know, my story and how I got sober. And, cool. But people all the time would come up to me and say, hey, Coach Baino, I – can i talk to you and i'm like sure and he said you know i read your story i think i might be an alcoholic i said all right well let's talk tell me what your habits are what are your you know and i'd say because there's all levels of it sure and then most of the time i'd say yeah you're an alcoholic and it's going to be hard but the one thing i will tell you is from the time i stopped drinking nothing but good things have happened to me and uh and it affects everyone you know a lot of it's DNA, you know, I mean, it, you know, if a mother's an alcoholic, a father's an alcoholic, it's got to be 90% that those kids are going to be alcoholics. And it affects so many families. It'd be rare to find anyone that it doesn't have a cousin, a relative, a friend, sure. you know, that's battling that disease. And now you have the opioid situation in our country, which is tragic. And, you know, my family's been affected by that as well. Yeah, um, same here. Sadly, yeah. So... I think we're making some strides in in curbing that but it's sad it's just sad because you know, I have a close friend who's a coach whose daughter's a heroin addict and he's frustrated and he blames himself and you know there's there's you know once they get you know they take those pain pills and then they can't get the prescription anymore his daughter tells him dad I don't want to do this I hate myself when I do it but it's a neurological brain-related disease and your brain is telling you and when you have that gene and you're an addict you know you can't you you know you can't just I never had one beer in my life if I had one I had a hundred and that's the alcoholics credo one's too many a hundred's not enough yeah and the people in my family that have been affected with with heroin especially you know uh, at a young age you know they 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 don't want to do it but it's something it's so
0: hard to kick um, it's so hard to beat it. I recently had on uh, Lilo Brancato on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He played uh, Colludiero in A Bronx Tale.
1: Oh, I know the the writer and whose story that was, Chaz Palmenteri. Sure. is a friend of mine. Oh, really? Chaz Palmenteri used to work for a close friend of mine, Barry Rorson, who was the head coach at Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was my assistant at UNLV. Was an assistant at St. Francis. Was. John Calipari's assistant at Kentucky was Mully's assistant at St. John's. He, before he got into coaching, was the general manager of the largest nightclub, really in the world, the Limelight. It was an old church. It would hold two thousand yeah, people. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Chaz was one of his doormen. Wow. And Chaz came and said, "Hey, you know, I, I'm an act. I act on the side. I'm trying to get my acting career going." I have this story of my life growing up. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he ended up showing it to De Niro, and De Niro's like, "That's it, I'm doing it."
0: First movie De Niro ever directed. Yeah,
1: and Chaz got the role. You know, he said, yeah. "My only thing is, I want to, I want to play you Sonny know. the Gangster." Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, yeah, so Lilo and, came on, and he—I don't know if you know his story, but he's a recovering heroin addict, Wow. crack, heroin, the whole deal. Because he got, he got plucked off of Jones Beach and put in the movie, and. He had never acted. He had no dreams of being a star or anything. He gets the main role in this movie and overnight he becomes a celebrity. Yeah. now was he using at the time? So what happened Never tried, any, he was 16 when he got the role, yeah. 17 when it came out. Smoked weed on the set for the first time, had never done anything. One of the guys in the movie gave him a joint on the yeah. way home one night. Yeah. First time he had ever been high. Started doing coke and uh, heroin. By the time he was on Sopranos, seven years later, I mean, he was a full-blown addict. Wow.
1: That happens a lot. People get, once you get the fame and that, that kind of accelerated my, you know, alcoholism when I got to UNLV. All Success sudden, at UNLV. And money. Money. You know, access. And, and then the pressure, you know, to, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is the only way I don't feel the pressure is when I'm drunk or I'm high.
0: Well, that was my question for you is he talked about how he didn't use it to escape things. He didn't, He was adopted, but he never used any of that as an excuse. I used because of this or I used because of that. And I know a lot of people that use because of abuse in their past or whatever it is, self-medicating. And the things that I read about your addiction was you were having stress from coaching and anxiety and insomnia. Yeah. Now, was it? That stuff, do you think that's why you did it, or you would have done it no matter you would have found a way, you know, to do it? You're celebrating, you, I mean, it's
1: a little bit of both. I think growing up, all I knew was basketball, chasing girls, and then I was introduced in the inner city to cocaine. And so, then you know, but I always worked hard, but I always partied hard, that was my DNA. So at the time. I didn't look at it as I was self medicating, but I was, because I had issues as a child that, you know, there was pain there, there was, you know, some some feelings that a low self esteem and, you know, then the anxiety that I was born with, that's part of our family. You know, you end up feeling less anxious and, and you don't you're not dealing with all those issues when you're drunk or high so you are self-medicating even though I didn't look at it that way I just thought I was having fun with my friends it was all I knew yep. you know and I I started drinking at a young age I think yep. I was 12 years old when I had my first beer so there I think there's both of that but ultimately you know I think we all do it to cover up what's going on inside I think so yeah I you know and it, and at the time when I went into counseling I, I said I don't I said, I just drink and do drugs to hang out with my friends and I enjoy it and it's fun. It, I just do it as a form of recreation. Yeah. And then when you start talking and you realize, you know you know what, you're right. I do feel this way. This did happen to me when I was younger and I am doing this to make myself feel normal. It's the only time I don't feel stressed, I don't feel anxious. But then the next day, the shame and the guilt... And what I would call the demons, they come for you, you know, and you you feel terrible about yourself, and it's just a cauldron, a bad mix of of everything. Lack of sleep, you know, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and it's stuff that on the outside people had no idea, because you hide it, you know? People had no idea. I, I didn't know I had anxiety until I took the job at LMU. I just thought it was what everybody went through. Yeah. And then you know that's where I learned how to meditate, and I learned that I had something that I need to treat, and and so that's you know kind of where I you know went started my path to to working on my mental health. Great documentary on Showtime about Ron Artest. Everybody I should saw watch, it. yeah. Yeah. And how real mental illness is, but it just also shows the true Ron, because I've known Ron. I recruited him. I went to watch him play at LaSalle when I think he was 15. Um, and I knew I have a lot of friends from his projects in Queensbridge, and I used to play in Queensbridge and hang out and do bad things in Queensbridge. But Ron is a special, special human being that made mistakes but confronted his issues. and I think he's just been a phenomenal uh, voice out there for, to, to help people that are battling mental illness because it's such such taboo. Like players, I've always had a team psychologist when I was a head coach. We have one. With the Pacers, every team does. But even to this day, it's kind of still taboo. The guys yeah. don't want anyone to know they're meeting with them, you know, because you feel like you're. it's showing a sign of weakness when really it's showing a sign of strength that you're willing to admit you have a problem and you want to get help. I was reading a story a couple of years
0: ago about Keon Dooling and his yeah. struggles yeah. and mental health issues. Are you familiar with his story? Yeah, I knew
1: Keon. I recruited Keon. I, I never knew he had those issues. But then again, Kevin Love and Damar. I coached Damar. I, I was as, and still am close with Damar, one of the greatest kids ever. I had no idea he was dealing with that. But it didn't surprise me because when I tell people I have anxiety, they're like, I don't ever see it. Yeah, I, I do see, too. Yeah, because I, I hide it. Yeah. I hide it. I don't want you to know. But, you know, it's 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 very real and it's you know you got to treat it it's it's uh, the mind is so powerful
0: keon's story really hit me it actually helped me in a lot of ways i i started seeing a therapist after i read it not because i was unaware of the things i was dealing with but the first time i i dealt with this stuff and got help for it i was like 20 years old and i was kind of i was forced into it basically they said you have to do this or you're gonna get in more trouble yeah when you're young so, you don't you don't yeah. want help i, I, I turned think down think help too. It. yeah
1: i had not to interrupt you but i had a close close friend in vegas that said look you got to you got to stop you got to slow down and when you're young you just think you're invincible and yeah. you're going to live your life the way you want to live it. i'm just but, being a kid I'm, yeah all my friends do this yeah. this is what we do but i encourage Anyone out there? I don't care what age you are. Like I'm in therapy now just to help me deal with the grief of my dad. My mom has cancer. Yep. You know, it's just the curveballs that life throws to you. But therapy helps. It works. It's proven. You know, you can't hold stuff in. You got to talk. And if you're with a professional, you're you're going to get better advice probably than you are if you're just talking to a friend. But you got to talk about it. You got to get it out. You hold it in, and it just churns in there, and then it comes out in anger and you know retaliation, and you know you just you're just not a happy person, and any little thing sets you off, and it affects your relationships, it affects your ability at work. So I, I encourage anybody out there that's you know feeling like something's wrong to go get to go see a therapist.
0: You know. So Bill and I met a f- couple weeks ago playing pickup ball. Um, I play in a group on the weekends, and Bill's friends with some of the guys that I play with. Shout out to Zeus. Big Zeus. Alain Hernandez. He was big, big Alain Zeus Hernandez was a guest on this show. Also, I've been hearing from Zeus and Alex Frazier for years telling me, you got to meet Bill Baino. (laughs) And I never really knew what they meant. And then the first time we played together a couple weeks ago, I didn't know who you were when you walked in the gym. And then Alex pulled me aside. He's like, oh, good, good. You finally got to meet Bill. And I'm like... Bill, I was like, yeah, I just played with him. I don't know, I don't know anything about him. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, that's Bill Bano. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, they've been telling me for years. Like, there's something about you. You remind me yeah. of somebody. East Coast, and we got the East Coast. Yeah, and I and I and right when not when we first met, but when we actually started, when I when you were introduced to me and you said who you were, and then I felt a little more like I knew you a little more. I felt like this little. I don't know. I could I could tell we come from similar type of backgrounds. Yeah and I Growing told up people in the inner
1: city yeah
0: yeah and when I told my friends from home I said uh, you remember Bill Baino used to coach at UMass I was like he reminds me of people from home like he's yeah. just like that type of guy and I mean you're maybe 15 years ahead of me yeah. but that's about it that's We're lucky we didn't know
1: each other we probably
0: would have partied ourselves to death so. yeah <laughs> yeah that could have been it's bad It's good to meet in sobriety <laughs> yes I'm I'm not a recovering alcoholic but uh, I definitely drank too much when I was younger and definitely curbed it at this age. Um, Well,
1: Alex Frazier is a great story. We laughed because I recruited him and I was in Brooklyn because I would go down to Brooklyn and, you know, even it was a non-recruiting period. So I'm playing pickup in the park and I'm still a young assistant and a good friend of mine coached at Tilden High School, Rock. But Alex is playing and there was another guy who ran the Brooklyn USA AAU program, Thomas Cisignano, a.k.a. Ziggy. And so I'm watching Alex play. I'm like, man, you're good, where are you from? He said, I'm from Miami, but my dad teaches at Jefferson High School in Brooklyn. So I come up here in the summer and I'm like, who's recruiting? He goes, nobody. And I said, no one knows who I am. I said, man, I said, all right, I'm gonna get you on an AAU team. So I give him to Rock. Rock's trying to get him to transfer up to Tilden. But I said, Rock, I'm giving you this kid because I know you'll help make him better and get him some exposure. But this is my, I want this, I'm signing this kid. I'm, you know, and Rock was very tight with Danny Knee. So as the summer goes along and we're recruiting, you know, I'm talking to Alex, thinking it's a done deal because I, you know, I got so close to him, and he's like, "Well, I'm gonna go visit Nebraska." I'm like, "Nebraska," and that was all through Rock. And so I call Rock up, and crazy recruiting story. And, and Rock's like, "Yeah, well, you know, Billy, I, you know, I, I trust you, and I think you got you and John to be good for him, but Danny Knee's my guy." You know, and Alex is my kid. I go. Alex is your kid. I go. I introduced you to Alex. You know, and I'm not trying to hold the kid back, but you know, we have a good situation. Why muddy the waters? And you know, Rock totally forgot that I was the one that introduced him. Alex and I were laughing about that, but he picked the right school. We had Dana Dingle and Dante Bright in the same position. Yeah. He ended up only share minutes. Yeah, he ended up yeah. So he ended up marrying the daughter of one of my close friends who was an NBA agent and still is, Merle Scott. Ah. And, so and you
0: have and a couple and, connections with.
1: Him. Yeah, yeah. So uh and I guess she, I've never met her, but I guess she's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yep, I've met her. There was a time I was coaching in the CBA, and this tells you what the small world basketball is, you know, walking into that gym and seeing Alex and then just recanting our history together and his relationship with Merle and marrying his daughter. But I knew his daughter had to be beautiful because I'm coaching in the CBA and you guys were making no money. And so I had Tyson Wheeler, who was a star yep. at Rhode he Island. He played with us
0: in that run before too. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I have Tyson on my team and he was a great kid and he was the leader of the team. I said, look, I'm gonna take you, that's when Xbox first came out. I said, I'm gonna take you and buy you an Xbox as a bonus for everything you're doing. And he's like, oh, coach, that's great. So we go to the store and we're at the checkout line. He goes, you know, coach, I gotta ask you something. I said, what? He said, I heard you're really good friends with Merle Scott. I said, yeah, Merle, yeah, great guy, agent. You know, we worked, we've known each other for 20 years. We worked five-star together, he goes, Look, you could keep this Xbox if you can set me up with his daughter. <laughs> and <I> went, what? <laughs> and I said, man, she must be beautiful. So, Alex, shout out to you know. Who well, I remember about Tyson? a great wife.
0: When you when you play with him, when he shoots, if you're covering him, he goes Wheeler. That's yeah. what he
1: says when he shoots. <laughs> I don't remember that, but he could shoot it. he, yeah. was, he was a great little player. He was.
0: It's time to keep it a hundo. You ready to keep it a hundo? Yeah. If you had to give up one, which one would you give up? Cocoa butter or coaching? That's easy. I heard you're a big cocoa butter guy. Yeah, coconut
1: oil now. I'd put it in my hair, i put it on my face, you know. I, uh, I do love that stuff too. Yeah, I use it in cooking. Just, uh, I think MCT. it's just so healthy, but I'd, I'd give it up for coaching.
0: Okay. Favorite cities to visit during the season? Uh, restaurants specifically, like. <laughs>
1: Um, I hate going to LA, and I hate coming to Miami. Why? Because you live? Because it there. just reminds me of yeah. I live in LA in the off season, yeah. and I spend a lot of time down here. I live down here one or two off seasons, and I've got good friends here. So it kind of just makes me realize I have X amount of months before I can ever get back here. Yeah, and it's a enjoy tease. It. Yeah, it's a tease that I don't like. New York, I hate going to because I get a hundred ticket requests every game, and you know we have so much work and yeah. You don't really have time. Pain in the ass. Yeah. Like I don't, I rarely ever even go out to eat because we have so much film to watch. I just order in or I'll go in New York to, you know, a restaurant and take food to go and then go back and I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a a favorite city Um, because it's all work. It's, it doesn't matter if you're in Miami or you're in Cleveland you're you're really for me I don't leave the hotel much you know I'm watching film and then we do the practice and we play the game and we're out you know it's just such a grind and things happen so fast I feel
0: like the coaches put in a lot more work than the players
1: <laughs> well you have to you yeah. know and you know their job is on the court and your job is to pre- prepare them to be in the best situation and it's one thing the big difference between college and the NBA and it's why I think you learn so much more in the NBA because you don't have to deal with anything but coaching and there's just the so much more takes film up work yeah half of it yeah you know I, I couldn't watch a whole lot of film as an assistant because there's just non-stop recruiting and on then the road also on the phone maintaining you know you're managing the players on campus you know making sure they're lifting in. yeah and you also have to build a relationship with them so you're you know you're constantly with them it's it's way more uh you know, I don't wanna say babysitting, but it's a lot less coaching and more just managing the players on your team. And the head coach obviously watches more film in college, but
0: So you're a D two All American at Sacred Hot. Uh shout out to Wendy Jim, Jimbo Kelly, a friend of mine from home. Yeah. Played lacrosse at uh Sacred Hot. Listen to really? the podcast. Wow. All right. Um, the Heart, baby, the Heart. Yes,
1: sir. Bobby Valentine. Oh yeah? yeah he's the ad there
0: yeah he's a connecticut guy
1: yeah connecticut guy and they got a good young coach there i just uh helped them get a player uh, one of karan butler's kids because i recruited karan and just yeah, close yeah. to him and he's from a tiny town racine. in Wisconsin, racine which is you do a sh- bunch of work up there right? straight hood yeah and a lot of the kids don't get recruited and so uh kareem ozir is i think he was all rookie team in in their league and not a lot of guys were recruiting him, and so he's, he's doing good things there. And I'm getting ready to see Karan, and I'll, I'll see him when I go out to LA. He lived out in L.A.'s Tremendous success story. i read his book, you know, it's true. And, yeah, I would like to. Yeah, you know, when I recruited him and when, was on the streets racing and met all his boys, I mean, it was like a war zone. You know, you, you just, like all the inner cities, unfortunately, in this country, you know, you, you just, it's, it's tough seeing what these kids have to go through.
0: So you guys are preparing to play AIC in the tournament. Mario, Mario Eli, legend. Yep. New York City. And what you're at the hotel bar and they're throwing drinks at you. What the boosters yeah. for AIC?
1: So the better part of this story, the first part is I take the Loyola Marymount job and I had recruited Inglewood High School and Patrick Roy was the coach. That's where Paul Pierce went. Yep. And so I had known Pat when I got the job. He said, "Hey, i We have our annual year-end sports banquet. Would you come speak?" So I said, absolutely. So I'm there, you know, and there's the kind of pre-festivities before we sit down to dinner and, you know, everybody's talking. It's like a little cocktail hour, you know, before we actually get the event started. And this older white man comes up to me and he said, hey, I'm, I forget his name. Uh, I apologize to him for that, but he said, do you remember me? And I said, your face looks familiar. He said, well, I was Jimmy Powell's assistant at AIC. I said, ah, oh. I said, you were the guy that was buying me drinks at the bar. And he goes, exactly. So I had this big speech prepared for the kids and the parents. And and we talked and we retold the story. And, and I said, you know what, that's, that's my speech. And I got up and I talked about we were in the I think it was the Sweet 16 of the NCAA Division II tournament, and uh, Manute Bowl was in it, and Mario was in it with AIC, and we end up getting to the. And yeah, Manute was at Bridgeport. Manute was at Bridgeport, uh, so it's us and AIC in the championship game, or no, it was the first round game. It was it was a yeah that was a uh, the round of 32, I guess, and. The winner ended up playing, I think we had to play, uh, Kenny Bannister in St. Augustine's. Yep. No, it was over the, the round of 16. So we went to the final eight, whoever won that game went to the final eight. So, you know, I was a big drinker in college and I it was, you know, I had a stupid mindset that makes of- two of us. Yeah, I'm a division one player and I can go drink all night and get hung over and still become, you know, win the game and just a dumb way to think of things. But, you know, the alcoholic's mind, so they're, they see me, I'm at the bar having a couple of drinks and it's 10 o'clock, I'm, I'm used to going to bed, you know, waking up hungover and playing, you know, and sweating it all out. So it's 10 or 10.30 and they say, oh, that's Baino over there and there's a bunch of boosters. So I said, hey guys, and they, they the bartender says, hey, they want to buy you as many drinks as you want. So I, I don't know how many I had, I probably had four or five and I'm like, yeah, send them over, appreciate it, thank you. Oh we're gonna God. kick your butt tomorrow. <laughs> so they thought they were gonna get me drunk and cost us the game, and I ended up, you know, having five or six drinks, thanking them, and I still got eight or nine hours sleep, whatever. I got a good night's rest, and we ended up winning the game, and, you know, but it caught up to me because in the next round, same thing happened night before I get hammered, and we lose the game, and I played bad, and we lost to Kenny Bannister and St. Augs, and uh, and they were really good, but the moral of the story was, you're, you know, it's going to catch up to you. And uh, and I talked to them about my alcoholism and my journey and just encourage any kids out there that, you know, if you're drinking at this age like I was, you're probably headed down the wrong path. Yeah, yeah. And even if you're not an alcoholic, it's going to affect you in a negative light. Binge drinking and problem drinking and yeah. all that stuff, which is yeah. where I fell in. Yeah. and So it ended up becoming a speech on adversity and dealing with adversity and, you know, sobriety and... Drugs and alcohol and, and small world that he happened to be. He was helping out Inglewood High School, believe me. Yeah. So even from Jimmy Powell and AIC to to Inglewood. Hey,
0: Mario Eli went to the NBA Finals from AIC. Yes, so he did. You never
1: know. And Manute was Manute. Yep. And now his son's in the draft. Yeah. One of the most Big intriguing
0: prospect, prospects. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that that's a true. That was true or false? That one's true. True. All right. What was more difficult? And this is a serious question. Okay. Giving up alcohol or sugar? Alcohol. Because form. the reason I say that is sugar doesn't seem like such a big problem. It's like, oh, well, I can manage it. It's only, you know, it's a it's a ring ding. It's a, no, it's a major it's a Coke. problem. It's a, you know. Yeah. It's terrible alcohol, for you,
1: you, one. It's poisonous. Yeah. Sugar's awful. And it's addicting. You know, sugar's a drug. So, yeah, no, but alcohol, alcohol was yeah, it was certainly harder. And maybe my sugar addiction came when I stopped drinking. Yeah. I was losing the sugar I was getting from the alcohol. Yep. Maybe my body was craving it, but I would literally put on 30 pounds. At the start of every season, I was coming off a summer where I'd work out way more than I did during the season. I'd eat healthier. I'd eat less sugar. And then once the season started and the stress came, sugar was my comfort food. Watching film at night, I would eat massive amounts of sugar. Like, I'm embarrassed to even say it. And it's amazing I didn't get diabetes uh, with all the sugar I ate. But I would put on 30 to 35 pounds. It's still hard, you know. The, the when you go on the road and you're watching film and you're in your room and that mini bar is just talking to you, kind of like drugs. Yep. You know, you remember the Richard Pryor documentary where the, the cocaine would talk to him, yep. the pipe would talk to him. And yep. And it's true. When you're an addict or an alcoholic, that, that bottle talks to you and it's in your mind saying, come on, just have one drink. Just do one line. You know, it's not going to hurt you. You know, just have one Snickers. What kind
0: of name is Baino? It looks like a name that was shortened.
1: Yeah, well, when I'm in Brooklyn with a bunch of Italian guys, it's Italian, but it's, right. it's really Polish. And okay. It was changed. So we, our family always jokes when our great-grandparents came through Ellis Island, they probably were processed by an Italian worker. Because when they said the name, the name was actually Bienia, B-I-E-N-Y-E, uh, which is kind of rare for Polish names because mostly ended ski or ska. Ski right, is right. the masculine, ska is the feminine. Yep. It was just Bienia, and then they probably repeated it three or four times, and the guy just said, the heck with it, Baino, yep. and wrote down Bano. So People think I'm Italian, but I'm pretty much Polish. My dad is 100% Polish. My mom is a mixture of Irish and German and Welsh and a whole bunch of things, Scottish and
0: Yeah, it looks like one of those names. I we should need- do a
1: DNA test just to I know what my dad is, but it'd be anxious to see, you know, what I get from my mom's
0: side. Yeah. Steel cage match. John Cheney versus John Calipari. <laughs> Because they almost went at it a few times.
1: Yeah, and the irony is they're great friends now.
0: Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, it was uh, Chaney's ultra-competitive. You know, he's from the streets, taking nothing away from John. Uh, I'd have to give the nod to Chaney in, in a steel cage match. But, but I wouldn't it, want to go at it with Chaney. No, even. no. He's I probably 80 now. I wouldn't now. either, yeah. North Philly, you know, no joke. That neighborhood.
0: Who you got? UMass is... Best team, which was probably 96, right? Yeah,
1: Final Four team.
0: Versus the KU team, you were... GA Danny Manning.
1: Four. You know, very similar. Both John and Larry. You know, John worked under Larry, so he learned a lot from Larry. You know, they both had one star player. Manning and Canby surrounded by solid Milton role players. Newton, yeah, Milton, Mark Turgeon, Pritchard. Uh, I, I'd have to say UMass because of Dante Bright and Dana Dingle. and.
0: Their length and Yeah, Travieso,
1: you know, could shoot and guard and Padilla was tough and Kellogg was tough and we just had a really, you know, close knit group. And and Cambi and Danny I think would have neutralized themselves. But I gotta go with you, Mass.
0: I would agree. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. But I was also ten years old. Larry, don't get mad at me,
1: Coach Brown. (laughs) Don't get mad at me.
0: Speaking of Coach Brown, uh, did you ever play pickup ball with him?
1: No, he was older, but he would shoot after practice,
0: and he would shoot a two-hand set shot from like forty feet and swish them all. <laughs> I read this article, and it's it had the top twenty, top twenty players that never played in the NBA, and he was on the list. Yeah, I guess he was really good at North yeah. Carolina.
1: Yeah, no, nah, he was just a smart setup point guard, kind of like a TJ McConnell. You know, he he could score when he wanted to, but he was just one of those guys that everybody thought couldn't play, and was just a tough. Brooklyn kid and played the right way and was a smart player and, you know, played the ABA, I guess. Yeah, Just, that's why yeah, they said he didn't play in the ABA. Yeah, yeah,
0: I got two guys that are also on that list that I'm doing a podcast with soon, and I was wondering if you recruited either of them. Who? Uh, Ronnie Fields.
1: No, but I know Ron, coached against Ronnie in the CBA. CBA, yeah. And ironically, so I'm going to visit my mom two weeks ago in New York. We had a weekend off from draft workouts and there was a little pub right below where my sister stays, so I went down to get some dinner. My mom was sleeping. And at the bar is a guy in a Fred Van Bleet shirt and Rockford. Yeah, Rockford. And I coach Pete Michael and I always thought Pete was from Rockford, but he was from Rock Island.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's closer to the city, I think.
1: Yeah. And so this guy was we're talking and I said we started bs and i said who's the best player ever to come out of rockford he might as of now fred will pass him but up until this point and he goes there was no other great players i go yeah pete michael and then he looked it up and saw "Oh, he's from rock island. island ronnie fields played for the rockford lightning that's right and so we played and, and the guy's laughing he goes, you mean you were in the whatever it was called the metropolitan convention center and that's where they played their games i said yeah ronnie fields was a legend just never got to the NBA. He played with Kevin Garnett in high school. He was a, he's a Chicago street Farragut Academy. Yeah, yeah.
0: The other guy, I'm going out to Long Beach and doing one next week with Shea Cotton. Did you recruit him at UNLV? No, Shea, well,
1: yeah, and I used to work Shea out. You know, I had multiple, when I was coaching in the CBA and the ABA, uh, after UNLV, Shea was a free agent, so I was, in L.A. a lot, and I, the team I coached in the ABA was in Phoenix. I lived in L.A. in the off season, and uh, so I had a chance to work Shea out. Shea was what I talked about before. He was a victim of the hype. If Shay wasn't hyped up and wasn't put on Sports Illustrated and wasn't told how great he was, things might have turned out differently for him. You know, and I think it's a lesson for all kids, you know, and that's something I said 30 years ago, is, and I forget where I probably got it from Calipari. I don't know. But just the words humble and hungry. Stay humble and stay hungry. Because when you get all that adulation and, you know, you're written up about and talked about and everybody's kissing your butt, you lose the humility and you lose the hunger a lot of times. And I think...
0: was started so young for him. Yeah,
1: and you start... You don't always... My other uh, philosophy there when white kids like he and Lenny didn't make it is because they didn't work on their weaknesses because they were so overhyped and told how great they were. They yeah. didn't want to look bad. Yeah. And when you work on your weaknesses, you're gonna look bad for a while yeah. till you get a right hand, till you get a left hand, till you work on this, or you work on that. And I think they always just did what they can do and thought that was gonna get them to where they had to go, but I think it you know, uh, everything, all the adulation and the, the the way they were treated I think affected their work ethic and affected their mental approach. And it it hurt them in the long run, because Shea should have been an NBA player. Yeah.
0: When you were an assistant with the Raptors, did Drake ever give you a back rub on the sideline? You know,
1: Drake sat two seats from me, and he and Cal were tight. Uh, And he is a phenomenal guy. Like, I didn't know anything about him, but I would see him every game. And so my segue to meeting him was, hey, I'm Cal's boy. And he would light up like a Christmas tree. He loves Cal. Yeah, we would tell Cal stories. And... So Drake was always good to me, but really humble guy, you know, and I know he gets emotional on that sideline, and he's a true fan, and, you know, people try to, you know, knock him, but, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, a a superstar in the world of superstars, he's really a good dude and a humble guy, and and, uh, great ambassador for the NBA, great ambassador for Toronto, and Nick Nurse is a close, close friend of mine. I'm so happy, and you know, Kyle was one of the players I coached there, and he and I have a good relationship and so happy for him because he he got a bad rap in the playoffs. Yeah. You know, even though he struggled some offensively, he's always had the heart of a champion. And now he can say he's a champion. And even when he wasn't making shots, he affected the game, you know, taking charges, getting loose balls. Absolutely. Setting guys up, you know, to get easy shots. Well, I
0: feel like guys like him who make an all-star team, then he's he's considered like a star player. And all that small stuff he does goes overlooked. So I'm a big Celtics guy. My favorite player is Marcus Smart. Yeah. Watching him play, Kyle yeah. Lowry does a lot of the same things Marcus Smart does. Yeah. He kind of shoots like him sometimes, too. I would
1: say Marcus Smart does a lot of what Kyle Lowry does because Kyle's... Right, the but older guy Marcus and, is
0: known for that. Yeah. Kyle's not known for that. He's no—he's expected to be the man when he actually brings you a lot of that stuff. Yeah, another,
1: I, another great story, Marcus's rookie year, he went at Kyle in the preseason because that's who he was, and it pissed Kyle off, and Kyle kicked his butt. I believe and it. did it that year, but Marcus never backed down. And then during the regular season, went at him again, talking, and Kyle kicked his butt again, as he should have. <laughs> but it never, you know, got Marcus to back off who he was. He was a fighter and a competitor and a pit bull, and so was Kyle, you know. But yeah, Kyle doesn't get the credit and respect that he, you know, he's a leading charge taker in the NBA. Yep. Just does so many things to affect winning, even when he's not making shots. And then you saw the game, he had the breakout game where he had 21 in the first half, yep. I think. So Everything that was- was falling. Yeah, really happy for all those guys up there. Toronto's a great organization with great people. Canada, I had a great two years there. People
0: there. Toronto's a great city.
1: Great city and really good people. Um, and great fans.
0: Have you ever had, and I think I know the answer to this, um, a player in college or pro show up higher drunk and you knew it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, to a we, game.
0: We speaking of uh, Keon.
1: can no. Um, and i I would never throw any of my players under the bus. I will say this: I'm so proud of Keon. Uh, he he lives an hour from us in Indianapolis and Danville. Yeah, changed his life, turned his life around. He's raising his kids. He's clean. He's sober. Um, we've had some great talks, and things didn't end well there uh, at UNLV. But you know, Keon was another kid similar to Lamar. They were good dudes, li- like me. I I don't think I ever really hurt anyone except myself right. through my, you know, drinking and and drugging and, and they're the same way they were both had big hearts and praying it looks like Lamar is is really overcome a lot of his demons and he's on a on a good place and a good path and and I'm praying for him
0: um, I don't know if a lot of people know your connection to Lamar Odom he's the reason or I guess I'm the reason
1: I got fired yeah but yeah, absolutely. I mean, you were that, the scapegoat, no? Nah, I, I don't look at it that way. Some people may. I was the head of that program. Um, but I, I wouldn't
0: blame him. I would blame that situation, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it was and it was hard. But I was the adult in the room, and I didn't act like an adult, okay. you know, because I, I still had my— You know, I was an alcoholic, so, you know, I didn't manage Lamar properly. You know, he did some things that made it hard for me to fight for him, and he got upset at me because he felt like I didn't fight, but— my president was female you know he had already been flagged for an SAT score uh, and then he got arrested for you know soliciting a prostitute and you know it would have been very hard for me to fight for him and to keep him and my president basically told me, you know he can't come here so there wasn't a whole lot I could do and you know but that was just a, a situation that I should have handled better and, and I didn't and a lot of people wanted to blame Lamar and you know, yeah, you can look at it. All my friends said, "Oh, you were a scapegoat. You didn't get any violations." But the bottom line is, and and for me to, part of getting sober is being honest. Yeah. And so to be honest, I deserve to get fired, and I, I learned from it. I'm never gonna point a finger at anyone else. It wasn't the AD. It wasn't the president. You know, You're I was the person
0: st- who gave him a bag of money
1: yeah and and and, you know i was forthright and honest and it was tragic a good friend of mine you know since passed from a heart attack who was involved in that who was a booster that got close to lamar and his aunt you know they were taking care of the kid the kid came from nothing and to me that's a whole nother issue it is you know you have these young kids that you know come from poverty and get to school and they have no money and so you're supposed to tell them they're not going to take money from a a booster that's you know you know paying them and i think a a lot of the and it's a big topic now that you know the ncaa is making billions off of players who make you know nothing and i think they've taken steps with the cost of living stipend that they give and along with the pell and but only certain programs can do it that have the budget for it right um you know a, a lot of these kids you know go through college and they're they don't have money at night to eat prayers up to lamar uh, and, and to Keon, Keon's doing great.
0: Yeah, for the record, I wasn't asking you to throw him under the bus. I heard yeah. a podcast recently about him.
1: I don't know that I ever saw, remember, Ke- I don't think Keon ever came to a practice or a game drunk. There was a player in the NBA that did, who I won't mention his name, and I think I've helped him, too, because he's come a long way. You know, with He's his- still in the league? No, he's out of the league uh-huh. now. But he was was really the only one. It was during the Christmas holidays, and all his boys were in town. And yeah, he showed up for game during the pregame workouts. You know, he was obviously drunk. Still had a double double. <laughs> <laughs> I've had n- numerous players after reading my stories come up to me and again want to engage me on, hey, you know, I think I might be I might have a problem. I'm like, all right, tell me, what are your habits? What are you doing? And was able to help them by telling my story.
0: Yeah, I know the stuff I heard about Keon was he said he never, he says he claims he never played an NBA game sober, but that might be an overstatement.
1: Yeah, no, I know once he got to the league and the pressure, I, you know, I know he was was hitting it pretty hard, and and uh, but I didn't know if he was actually. That's amazing if he was because he was a heck of a player. You know, he had if a he was decent out there. NBA career. Yeah, he said well, he was
0: drinking gin at halftime.
1: Yeah, probably. You know, I know he was raiding the mini bar, emptying his mini bar out after every game. He he did admit that in an article that I read. Hmm. And he wrote an article, I read an article where when he was in prison, he said, that's the first time I've ever been clean and sober. And it changed my life. I just saw everything different, you know, and and I knew I needed, you know,
0: to be sober. Uh, Have you ever had dinner with Larry the Legend Bird? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I have.
1: Not one-on-one, but we had the dinner down at the Orlando Summer League my first year there where we took all the young kids, and that's where he told the stories. And I, as I was there, I'm like, man, I have friends in Boston that would pay <laughs> millions to be in this room and just listen to these stories. Yeah, um, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so yes, I have had dinner with Larry Bird.
0: Have you ever played horse with him?
1: No. Uh, not sure he gets out and shoots much. Yeah. I know he, he gets on the, uh, we have this Alter-G treadmill yeah, where you I've run. i used it. Yeah. So he does that a lot, he's still in good shape. You know, he cares so much and he's so competitive. His presidency, you know, you could just see the change when he stepped down and became a consultant and turned it over to KP. Just how much healthier he looked, how much less stress he looked. Sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) and uh, I think he's Larry's in a really good place and we're so lucky to have him and, and he comes to practices and Kevin and Nate lean on him you know, for advice in the draft. And, you know, these last two weeks we've been doing draft workouts so he's been there. So I've always go up and talk to him just to, you know, pick his brain and see who he likes and see what he's thinking about. So the draft will be interesting tonight. I'm dying to see who who we take.
0: There's probably been some trades made that we uh, don't even know about right now. (laughs) Yeah,
1: today's the day, yeah.
0: Favorite places you've been overseas? Actually, what's your favorite? Barcelona, place you've been overseas? Barcelona. I love Barcelona.
1: Barcelona to me is a combination of New York and L.A. The the streets have the same energy. Yeah. When you're walking around in the city, and then you the go beach. down to the marina and it's the beach. It's like Marina Del Rey. Yeah. Uh, the people are. I love the Spanish people. With the political climate that we've had here over the years. It, there's not a lot of countries that you go to where people, you know, love Americans. Yeah. It's probably not 100% accurate, but, you know, there's a lot of countries that you go into, and when you they find out you're American, you get treated differently in a sure. bad way. Barcelona, the people are great. The food is great. Sure. The sightseeing is. is phenomenal. The cathedral, I forget what they call it, uh, one of the family. oldest, yeah. and they're still renovating it. Yeah. Um, to there's this, always cranes and stuff Yeah, on to it. this day. But I love Barcelona. I love Venice. I love Mykonos. I recommend any of the Greek islands. Yep. Um, Capri is one of my favorite places Same in the entire Mykonos world. Mykonos and Capri. Yeah, I had a great four days by myself in Mykonos. I almost killed myself on a, I mean, in uh, Capri, almost killed myself on a scooter. Yeah, those. But I entertain. Yeah, you know, I would you know go down to the rock beaches. You set your towel on the rock, yeah. and then you jump in the ocean. And yeah. they got little ladders. You climb out. Yeah. You know, you go up, great food, and you go up to the hit, top of the hill where everything is, and there's just energy. And uh, Capri is uh, should be on everybody's bucket list.
0: You said you spent plenty of time in the casinos when you were in UNL at UNLV. Never was a big gambler. You weren't a gambler?
1: now No, I would gamble with Barkley. I'd piss him off, and you know he'd be gambling big, big money in every space, and so I'd throw my hundred-dollar chip on one of his, and you know. And he'd get mad at me. I'm like, what difference does it make? Right. You know, Changing if you win, energy, I'm going to take 100. So. You're going to take your 20,000. <laughs> he goes, that's my stack. You know, stay up. Gamble your own play. You know, <laughs> we used to laugh and have fun. But uh, it was more in Vegas. A lot of the locals, like the Hard Rock had a sidebar. And that's where a lot of the locals would go. And so yeah. we would go in the casinos to socialize and party and hang out. But I hated losing money. I'm cheap. Anybody that knows me, I'm cheap. <laughs> I give a lot of money away, so I have a lot of kids in my life that I'm trying to help, and so I, I need every penny I can get. I hate losing money, so.
0: Well, I, I was going to ask you, how do you feel about splitting kings and blackjack? Uh, a, I was a big blackjack. Player. I would do
1: it. Just, I'd split anything. I used um, to do it all the time. Yeah. And the only time I ever won test. when I, because I didn't gamble much, but when I did. It was when I was drinking and so I wasn't afraid to lose. Yeah,
0: scam money, don't make money. Yeah,
1: and but when I was sober gambling, I never won anything. Yeah. Yep. And
0: uh, Alright, last two here. Uh top five rappers, dead or alive. Ah, I know man. you're 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 the oldest guy I've ever had on my podcast. Yeah. So this might this question might be a little right, beyond so I'm,
1: you. I'm gonna no well, this is gonna segue into another story that I tell my players, they don't believe me, but I grew up, I was 16 when rap was invented. So yep. people, a lot of people don't realize rap was invented in New York. Yep. All right? And there's a big debate whether it was the Bronx, the Bronx. or Queensbridge. Yep. So MC Shan in Queensbridge, uh, cool DJ Herc, yep. African Bambada. Yep. So in 1976, I was 14 years old and I was in Newburgh for the first time. And my friends were rappers in Newburgh. All right, when, when Sugar
0: Hill Gang was about to come out. Sugar
1: Hill Gang was about to come out. Grandmaster Flash was already doing battles. And they would you know, go to different neighborhoods and have block parties. And I had a buddy named Kid Nice. He was the, the K-I-D-N-I-C-E. Rock the beat. Make it sound so sweet. <laughs> he so, was like the best out of Newburgh. Yeah. Unbelievable. Phenomenal. Battled Flash. He did a thing. you know. Back then it was always two, two turntables and a mic with a yep. mixer. Yep. And they would cut and scratch and play the two same albums and go to different parts. And there's a great documentary on Netflix where the key was the crayon. And I didn't understand what they were talking about. But the, the DJs at the time, they weren't the rappers. They were the DJs that would cut and scratch. And some of them would do both. And Kid Nice would do both. Yeah. But the crayon was the marker on the record right. of the beat that you wanted to go back to. Yeah. And you could make a whole new song off of two of the same songs. So good times, you know, these are the good times. That was the background that most rappers played off of. And so I always tell my players I had to be the first white rapper ever to live because they gave me a mic and said and nicknamed me MC Snow because my name on the street was Billy Snow Snowboy, and so I became MC Snow and I I did a rap I actually
0: wrote something out
1: wrote something and copied it off Sugar Hill Gang because that was the first big rap and I did my own little rap song and um, so I'm really closely tied into, you know, the rap scene and uh, my friends in Queensbridge. You know, Nas is definitely on the list, but you know, Jay-Z is just a generational talent. I watched his uh, show with David Letterman on HBO, phenomenal. uh, Talk about a journey and, you know, his commitment to his wife and the mistakes that he made, but you know, how he hung in there and the perspective of, you know, I adopted black children because of all the great friends that I had and the, you know, I call them my second family in Newburgh, they welcomed me and took me in, in an environment where the white man was the devil to a lot of these people because of how they were treated. And I, they treated me like family and it woke me up to, you know, how special the African-American people were and, and what they did for my life. I would not be here. I would not have any of this success that I have if it weren't for my African-American brothers and sisters and grandmas who looked after me and took care of me. But I never met any of my friends' dads, and that stuck with me. And I knew at some point I was going to adopt black kids that didn't have a dad because I just felt that's what I was put on earth to do and my experience and, and how much they helped me and shaped my life. But yeah, I was a I was a little amateur rapper there for in nineteen seventy six seventy seven.
0: The the stuff you said just struck a vein. I I know why everybody said we need to get to know each other because I have a second family and it's the same exact. It's Elton's family. Okay. And I I have a, a story about a time I was driving. I used to live in. Uh, you familiar with Dorchester? Oh yeah, dot dot so, dot. That's dot what the town. white people call it. Dot town. Yeah. <laughs> they they don't call it that. Yeah. So. I was living in Dorchester at the time, and Elton's grandmother lived in Dorchester, but I lived on like the southeast side, over by there. Yeah. So I had to drive through this bad neighborhood to get there.
1: Blue Hills Avenue?
0: It was close to there, yeah. yeah but it was. was on Dudley, which okay. is really bad. Yeah. So I'm driving through Dudley, and I get pulled over. It's daytime. I mean, you know, dinner time. And I'm not doing anything. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing anything. I get pulled over, and gunpoint both sides of the car get out the car, put me on my stomach, gun to the back of my head, knee to my back, roughing me up a little bit. They closed the street down. I don't have any idea what's going on. There's people coming out their houses. And I just got pulled over for driving white in a black neighborhood, literally. Yeah. I didn't have anything. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't, yeah. I've never been a drug they guy. Assumed, they I never, assumed you
1: were getting drugs. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I was
0: either selling or buying. Yeah. And yeah. They, it was about 30 minutes. I get to Elton's house, we were having dinner at his house, his grandmother was cooking, and she's like, where you been? You only live up the street now, like, what took you so long? And I was shook a little yeah, bit, you know, and, and I, I told them the story, and uh, they were all laughing at me, and they're like, well, yeah, we knew you were one of us, like, now you know what it's like, and you're part of the family, but, you know, yeah. welcome to the family. Yeah. And that's, you know, they've always taken me in as one of theirs, and his grandma, I tell her I love her. I call her grandma. She tells me calls me her grandson. Like that's the type of relationship we have, and I, I can totally feel what you're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. And think about all the, the young African American kids, and you know that are being profiled and treated that way now. Even in, yeah. You know, in 2019, it seems like it's even going a little bit backwards and going and, and worse. But,
0: you know, I, I saw the same things. Um, think about all the dumb stuff we did drinking. And how many times I should have been arrested for yeah, the things I did, yeah. and I got the benefit of white privilege. Yes, hundred percent. hundred percent. It happened hundreds yeah, of times. Yeah, my friends and I. I was happy to see Corver do that article because white privilege,
1: you know, is one hundred percent a reality and very real. You know, I always say if if more white people had my experience growing up, I think there'd be less racism because racism is really based on ignorance. You know, if you're around. Growing up around you know purple people and then you meet a pink person you know you're gonna think negatively of that person because you don't know anything about them you've never seen them and you know it's an issue in our country and I, I hope we're we continue to make strides uh, it all starts with I think education and having you know more positive role models but yeah it's uh, it changed my life it changed my life I wouldn't you know I would not be here if it wasn't for you know my second family that loved me and, but I also saw things that changed how I saw the world. And I realized I was privileged and because of the color of my skin. And, you know, there were all kinds of incidents where, you know, we'd be someplace and my friends would get stopped and I wouldn't, and I'd be with them, you know? And it's like, hey, what's going on here? Um, But to get back to your original question on who my top five rappers are, You know, Biggie, without a doubt. Tupac, uh, you know, the documentary on HBO, uh, The Defiant Um, Ones.
0: Unbelievable. Best documentary I've ever watched. I think it is. I think it might be.
1: And the thing that struck me was a scene, you know, Tupac had such a big heart and cared so much about the poor people and about, you know, his, as he called them, his brothers and sisters in the hood that, you know, didn't have the opportunities you know, that white people have growing up in the suburbs. And he had, I don't know who the person was, but it was a records, st- you know, studio executive that was worth whatever. And he's like, you have $36 million. And there was a young black girl, single mom with a kid who was, looked 16 or 17, and she has nothing. And you can live with that. You can sleep at night knowing that you have all this money and." You know, she's one of millions that has nothing and, you know, do we care about her? Do we want to help her? Do we, you know, you know, so Tupac's on there. Biggie, Tupac, Nas for sure, you know, lyrical genius, a poet, Jay-Z, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's
0: so many. What about your boy in Newburgh? Did he make the list?
1: You know, as if sentimentally, yeah, he, <laughs> he ended up getting caught up in the street life and, and went away. Uh, he's turned his life around, but he was a musical genius.
0: And what was what was his name again? Kid Nice. And Kid he, Nice. He
1: lives in, in uh, Maryland, so I see him when we play the Wizards. We stay in touch. The real name is Tim Howard. Uh, but he did. So imagine we're in 1976. Rap has just started cutting and scratching the turntables and the mixers just invented. Guys are trying to figure out you know, how to cut and scratch. Um Jimmy Smiths was in the documentary on Netflix. I forget the name of is the show. Is that the one
0: Hip Hop Evolution?
1: <laughs> no, but it's an actual series. It's not oh, a documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, on how rap yeah. was invented, and it's yeah. it's very accurate. Um,
0: uh, Shaolin, fantastic, and yeah, uh, I can't remember the uh, name. Wu Tang
1: but... would probably be my fifth. I think just I love the Wu-Tang. collection of Wu Tang, and their documentary on Showtime's phenomenal. Those yes, guys, it is. Are, those guys are geniuses. Absolutely. But Kid Nice took. So he came over for my 18th birthday party. We had like a three-day party, and he just set up all his equipment in my little indoor patio. And all my friends came over, and they were literally fighting to get copies of these tapes. And Nice could have sold them for $100. My friends would come over, can I get that one? And and then we'd end up making copies. But he would take, imagine this now. So you have the two turntables, and you have the mixer. He took a Dixie cup, and he cut it in half. And he poked a hole in the bottom of it and he set that on the little nub that's on the middle of the of the uh, turntable right that spins the record Now all the needles and the record players you could twist the needle out and you could turn it upside or you could right, it would, right, it would right. go back in it would twist back in pointing down to play the record yep. or you could twist it back in and it would be pointing straight up. And he just, I don't know where he came up with the idea, but he flipped the record over, set it on the Dixie Cup, yeah. took the needle, twisted it out, twisted it back in, and played the record backwards and cut and scratched off that to where it was like, like, how did you think of that? It was just genius. And nobody had ever done it. And he was on his way to becoming a big time. Ty- he had made two records. He was him- too soon. Yeah, and he, you know, he got caught up in the street life. But yeah, Kid Nice was, was amazing.
0: The name of that show was The Get Down. The
1: Get Down, yes. Yeah. I recommend it Down to Crew. anyone if you really want to.
0: My friend who I had on this show as a guest, he directed a couple episodes of that show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I have one more question for you. Kay. I close out with everybody. Okay. Uh, what's your death row meal?
1: Oof. Gumbo, jambalaya, black and catfish. With with, with greens and macaroni and cheese.
0: Good thing you never got the job in uh, New Orleans. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's my
1: favorite. What
0: are you having to drink with it? I know it's not alcoholic.
1: Yeah, no, probably a Diet Dr. Pepper, although I've been trying to get off the diet soda too.
0: Yeah, no soda. Yeah. Uh, That's great. The last thing I want to say is I love what you're doing, helping kids, whether it's adopting or, or mentoring, all that stuff. One of the main reasons I kind of gravitate towards my closest friends is because, like you said, they come from homes without a father. Most of them didn't even know him. And I I almost look at, like, I admire the hell out of them because I didn't, I came from a home with two parents and very strict and my, my dad scared the hell out of me. And I was always afraid of letting him down. Yeah. And a lot of the stupid shit I did, it wasn't, oh, I'm going to get in trouble with school. I'm going to get in trouble with the coach. I'm going to get in trouble with the police. It was always my dad. I'm yeah. worried about him. Yeah. Disappointing him, yeah. pissing him off, all that. They didn't have that. Yeah. And they still turned out to be good people. Yeah. So like, yeah. I admire the fuck out of them. Yeah.
1: And my friends in the same scenario have grown up to be great dads. Um, all of mine too yeah kyle lowry is a great example he's an unbelievable father and he never knew his dad and uh you know it definitely i have friends just like that that said i am going to be a great dad to my kids because i never knew my dad and and i never had that and uh i'm not going to deprive my son of that and so you know that's been a positive byproduct of, of for a lot of these guys that grew up without dads and that motivated him to become good dads, you know. Unfortunately, it's still a problem that exists. Jay-Z made an unbelievable point that I never thought of. He said, what's going on right now with Trump and our politics? He said he's happy it's going on because it's now bringing to light that we still have people in this country that think black people are less than human, that are out-and-out open racists, and Trump's bringing them out. You know Charlottesville that it, it's still alive and well and it's and it's a, a, a cult or a faction of society that is still there and it's very real you know I never thought about it that way you know it's uh, it's still a thing that really pains me when I see the inner cities and I go back to Newburgh and it's not only not gotten better it's gotten worse you know I'm so blessed to have the the, the upbringing that I did and I had great parents You know, they had their issues, but I learned so much from my second family in the inner city. And uh, it's made me a better person. It's given me a great life. And so I'm always trying to to give back and to help because I I feel I owe it to anyone that I can help, especially, you know, young inner city black kids.
0: Shout out to Elton Tyler, Mike Simmons, and Marcus Barnes. They're great examples of what you just said, three of my closest friends. Thanks, coach. Yeah. Anytime, Matty.
1: Good to be here. Good to see you and uh, keep doing the work you're doing. I appreciate it. All right, buddy.
0: That's it for Bill Bano. That guy's got so much life experience, so much basketball knowledge, so many good stories. I'm definitely going to have him on again. He's got so much to say. We went to lunch after we did the podcast and the stories didn't stop and... I've gotten to know him better and he's just a great guy and he is definitely someone I want to keep in touch with. Not to mention I'm still trying to wrap my brain around this MC Snow thing. He might actually be the first white rapper, like until somebody else can claim it. Who was rapping before 1976, never mind a white guy rapping before 1976. With that said, it's hot as hell out and I'm recording this in an upstairs room at my parents' house. And there's no AC in here, and I'm sweating my ass off. So I'm signing out. Thanks for listening to Keeping It Hundo. Next week, we'll have Shea Cotton on. I said a hip hop, the a the hippie to the hip, hip hopper. You don't stop the rocket to the bang, man, Bigger Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the booger to the beat. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. See, I am Wonder Mike and I like to say hello Up to the black, to the white, the red and the brown and the purple and yellow But first I gotta bang, bang, the boogie to the boogie Say up, jump, the boogie to the bang, bang, boogie Let's rock, you don't stop rock the rhythm that I'll make your body rock Well, so far you've heard my voice But I brought two friends along And next on the mic is my man Hank And come on, Hank, sing that song Check it out, I'm the C A S N, the O V A, And the rest is F-L-Y you see, I go by the code of the doctor of the mix. And these reasons, I'll tell you why. You see, I'm six foot one and I'm tons to fun. And I dress to a D. You see, I got more clothes than Muhammad Ali. And I dress so fishy.